This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach. Your guide on the side. We do what we can on this show every day, three hours a day, to give you the information you need to uh, lead your life, to make it a happier, a better place, live longer, love stronger. That is the goal. And, you know, to give you a little behind the scenes of, of the news. Tonight uh, is the Fight Fest number three, the breakdown of the GOP, but televised. It's been going crazy lately, from the Benghazi hearings to the Paul Ryan. uh, By the way, his vote is today, I guess. Today, Paul Ryan will probably win the Speaker of the House position, the vote. Well, no. Yeah. There's two votes. Yeah. There's one today and one tomorrow. But it seems like the way this works is you kind of know before they vote, because that would be humiliating. Or not. Right? right? Who knows? We'll see. We'll see. Hopefully, it's not like the World Series last night. Game one, what was it, 14 innings? They went 14 innings. Five and a half hour game. Bada boom, bada bing. By the way, who won? I went to bed. You went to bed? I was Along with half the nation. If you're on the East Coast trying to watch this, it's 1 o'clock in the morning. Well, but you should. I mean, if you love life. But still, 1 o'clock in the morning. They could start this earlier. The the Royals won. It was incredible. By the way, the very first play of the game, apparently. I I only heard it. In in the park, home run. (laughs) You've seen an in the park, home run in Little League. Seen him in the major leagues. Well, but like that's a big feat. No, that should probably be about size twelve. It's about two feet. It's a normal size foot. You got to run like you've seen him overthrow, 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 score. But like that's a big deal. You got to hustle in the pros. These guys don't have six overthrows to score a you know to score a crazy hyperactive kid. <laughs> Instead, wow, he's fast. Look at him go. Look at him go. Speedy Gonzalez. So, um, anyway, 14 innings. What an opening game that is. That's pretty cool. Whatever. If, if this is how the series is going to go, hang Which on. won't. Buckle in. You don't think so? No. I'm going to just turn into baseball after a while. Oh, see, you're so cynical. <laughs> it's baseball. You're it always so turns into baseball. You're ba- and, and politics just turns into politics. Yeah, every time. You never see, like, a, a, a new idea. You never see something that really rallies people. You always tonight, see politics. Tonight we'll see something different. Like, what, it's on a different channel that no. not everyone gets? No, I heard Rand Paul's going to do a ventriloquism act. Oh, vaudeville, <laughs> great. Tap dance, are we going to get some of that? According to Huffington Post, some of the people are a little ticked off because uh, some of the GOP candidates are ticked off because their green room is more like a restroom. Okay. Donald Trump got is this that... really nice spread, a nice room to spread out, to this... have his people just relax. Huh. But... You know, Rand Paul's like in the shower. 
with three plastic chairs. <laughs> They're nice plastic chairs, though. They were on sale. <laughs> the deal is you can't please everybody. But what's interesting is CNBC's hosting this, and it's all going to be about the economy. Well, there's some other topics, too. Yeah, but what's amazing, this is stuff we don't talk about. We Apparently, we have yet to talk about the debt. So the, the business channel is going to talk about business topics? Not weird? It's weird. Totally weird. So when Fox Business hosts theirs down the road here in a few months, do you think they'll kind of just talk more social issues? Oh, for sure. Okay. I'm going to bet. Didn't Fox host one yet? Well, Fox did, but this is Fox Business. Ah, Fox Business will, again, then host business topics. Maybe not. The economy. Maybe they'll go for favorite recipes. You never know. Anyway, it's 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 a big day. It's actually not. It's just a day. It's just another day. I actually kind of dreaded the fact that the debate's tonight. Yeah. Did you? Why? Because then I have to kind of listen to it and grab some sound bites for tomorrow morning. Yeah. It means I have to kind of listen to well, it you again. Well, you should care because this is about your future. Well, not really. You're not a college student the vast, like Ben that just the can vast go home majority and make top of the people ramen. that are on the stage tonight will have no bearing on that's most true, of what's going true. on. But you know what? It will be interesting to see what uh, Trump tries to do to Ben Carson. That's going to be interesting. Well, Jeb Bush has got to start doing something. And like we've talked about with Trump, he went out. He mentioned Ben Carson's religion, and that seemed to kind of backfire. Backfire a little bit. So I don't know if he's seeing that as a backfire, or he, does he just? Look at the pollsters, like you said the other day. They hate me, so yeah. that's why I'm down in the polls. We're going to find out so today what it's about. I know what it's about. The reason Trump and Carson are winning is it's because of Facebook. And Could today be. we'll be talking about it with Dr. Paul Brewer from the University of Delaware. We're also going to ask him what happened to Joe Biden. Mm. He should know. He's from Delaware. So we'll ask him. You might have some inside info. But he's he did a study called the, on the Facebook effect, and would you believe – that when you read your Facebook comments, are you big on reading comments? No. Yeah, who does that? I don't read the comments on Facebook. Do you do that, Ben? Is that what people your age do? <laughs> I don't go out of my way to read the comments. I mean, I, but apparently people read the comments, and depending on what the comments say, it sways how you feel about a candidate, if you're into them or you're not, which surprises me because – I'm not into reading the comments. Well, my thought is, who's commenting? They're just random people. Well, family members. Well, yeah. I mean, a family member is the one that's going to comment on a Rand Paul comment. And so it, it, it comes back to who are they, where are they from, why are they, what, are, are they an informed but the, individual the, making this comment, or are they no. simply just reacting to a no. headline, or how does this work? It's and because so, they have a microphone so they can comment. So I don't know why I would read their comments. I know, so but people do. I don't. Social Man. media. I mean, that's how most people only get their news through I know, social media. It's crazy. You would think people would, may want to filter and find someone that might be informed and know what they're talking about. You know what they should do is listen to the Matt Townsend show. That's what I'm talking about. Deep, you profound could analysis. Matt. Yeah. You listen talked to about, me. Because I, I, what I do is I read the comments on Facebook, then I come tell you what they're saying. And then you talked about Pop-Tart flavors yesterday. Oh. Yeah, really yeah. in-depth stuff on the show. Today, by the way, happy National Chocolate Day. Yeah. It seems like chocolate has a lot of holidays. Well, it should. <laughs> no, it shouldn't. No, it shouldn't. So Dr. Paul Brewer, Brewer, he will be joining us in just a few moments. We'll be talking about the Facebook effect. And you can be thinking about how social media impacts your life. But before we do that, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry. Thanks, Matt. Tonight, the third Republican debate there on CNBC. The debate has a title. 
Your Money, Your Vote, live from the University of Colorado in Boulder. The debate begins at 8 p.m. Eastern. After days of tense negotiations between the candidates and CNBC, the debate is set to run two hours. That includes the commercials. CNBC says the debate will pay attention to economic issues, including taxes, retirement spending, and job growth. They'll also talk about tech policy. Well, that'll be part of the mix. The main debate will include Trump, Carson, Bush, Rubio, Cruz, Huckabee, Paul, Fiorina, Christie, and Kasich. The undercard has Santorum, Jendal, Pataki, and Graham. So, if you want to watch, there you go. Despite the fact that the House Freedom Caucus is on board for Paul Ryan's expected ascension to Speaker, many members of the conservative group will vote against him in a private conference vote today. The move is to uh, the move to stick by Webster, which would come from at least 80% of the Freedom Caucus. It's inconsequential. The supermajority of the Freedom Caucus will eventually pledge allegiance to Ryan on the House floor once the uh, inevitable nominated Speaker behind closed door vote today open floor vote tomorrow at least that's the plan Mm. the white house and the republican leaders of congress reached a budget compromise on monday many of the more conservative side of the republican house are not happy with the deal outgoing speaker john boehner says this is a good deal all sides can be happy with when you got a bipartisan agreement in a town uh, that isn't known for a lot of bipartisanship you're going to see bricks flying from those uh, that don't like the fact that there's a bipartisan agreement Uh, but there is um, it's a solid agreement, and I told my colleagues there isn't any reason why any uh, member uh, should vote against this. The man just sounds happy. Yeah, he sounds like ah, oh, I'm, I'm out of here. You know, I'm just I'm just waiting <laughs> my time. Bye. Is my ride here yet? He's got his office <laughs> packed up, ready to go. He's so, excited. Expect the budget deal to be a topic of tonight's debate in Colorado. Yeah. During a Tuesday evening press conference, Richland County Sheriff Leon Lott reiterated his disgust with the video showing Deputy Ben Fields body slamming a female student to the ground, mm. but defending Fields by noting that a third unreleased video identif- un- uh, has the unidentified girl hitting the officer with her fists. Ooh. So he's saying- but After the fact? Before, oh really? This happened in South Carolina. The video, you'll see, if you look on the web, it's there. She's yeah, sitting I in her chair, it. and one video just kind of shows him talking to her for a moment. Then he picks her up and slams yeah. her and the desk to the ground, drags her across the floor, body slams her, all this yeah. stuff. Well, now there's a third video that shows her striking him. Oh, an actual video. Okay, yes. I thought that. Okay, in this Good. classroom, all, right. all the kids have their phones, so oh, they're yeah. all recording. That's what's this. great about America. And, and so you see the 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 girl strike him. I guess in the video that hasn't been released. But he says that doesn't just doesn't. Uh, he's going to no. look at what the officer did and if his actions were measured depending on what she did. And what's pro- I mean, wow. you watch it. I don't. No, it's pretty intense. It's over the top what he did. Yeah. yeah so we'll see totally. later on today if this guy still has a job. But uh, he, uh, the, the the sheriff, did point out that she did have she wasn't innocent in all this. Yeah. So, and you talked about the home run, mm-hmm. the uh, leadoff. Here's that leadoff home run from last night's Royals game. First pitch. It is Escobar, and he swings and hits it into left center. Back at the track, it is dropped. Cespedes couldn't make the catch. How about that effort? Digging around third. Oh, listen to that crowd. That was cool. That's the first time a in-the-park home run has happened in the World Series since 1929. That is. Right? See, so, back in the day well, yeah. when you had to get – you were shifty. Yeah. <laughs> so that game's at 918 Eastern. Fox paid they, – they had paid $500 million for broadcasting rights wow. for the World Series. They lost the signal at I know, about 918, it, oh. right? So it goes dark. 
Now, it was out for like four minutes. They come back. They, they start shifting between the Los Angeles studio and the Major League uh, International oh, feed. Oh, Doing all this stuff because the main Fox feed, they had a generator. It failed. The backup generator it failed. Like it, probably like at the time, like a four hundred dollar rental generator possibly failed. <laughs> <laughs> they go off the air. They're off till uh, nine forty four. So from nine eighteen to nine forty four, Fox their main feeds. They off ran the, out of gas. But, the, the but at the time, they're switching between commercials and their Los Angeles yeah. studios, and they they tried to go to the oh. Major League Baseball international feed. All going back and forth, but uh, in the end, they got their broadcast back up. The Royals win game one, five to four in fourteen innings. Sacrifice, wow. fly at the end, guy scores, they go on. Um, after the game, Royals starting pitcher Edison Volquez learned that his father had died wow. yesterday, right before the game in the Dominican yeah. Republic. His family told the team what had happened, but they said, don't tell him till after Did the game. Did you hear, but in the middle of, I mean, so in the middle of the game, they're saying, here he is playing, he was pitching, right? Yeah. And... But he didn't know his father had died, except they're talking about it in the middle of the game. Yeah, so he could find out yeah. about it. Well, they're not, they're not allowed to get on social media, look at their phones, oh, all I that know, stuff during games. Anything. So. Sorry about your dad. Someone yeah. yells that. Oh, it's just well, yeah, crazy. yeah. If someone from the stands yells it out, yeah. <laughs> That's well. I mean, what do you do? You don't want to mess him up. Yeah, and the family wanted him to play. Yeah. This is a big time for his him. His father would have probably loved that. Absolutely. So, and That's I believe cool. he's on a plane to go oh, visit, go visit his family because they okay. have a couple days till they play again. Wow, they need a rest after a fourteen inning game. Cool stuff. Hey, uh, this is a fun time of year, right? This is when it's all happening. Basketball started as well, NBA. So um, interesting stuff. Uh, Coming up in just a few minutes, we're going to be talking with Dr. Paul Brewer from the University of Delaware. He's going to be talking to us about social media comments. Is it possible that the best social media expert, whichever campaign has the best social media team, wins the campaign? I'm going to ask him that because I have a feeling if you play your Facebook right – you might have some serious success. It might even be one of the keys to Donald Trump, to Ben Carson, and some of their popularity. We'll find out. Talking to the experts about uh, the things that matter to you in your life. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, social media platforms like Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, they were important channels of communication during the past couple of presidential elections. But nowadays, many people use their social media streams as their primary news source. That is the only source of news many have. So you may feel that your political viewpoints are well-balanced and well-informed because you see a variety of news feeds. But have you ever considered whether your perceptions of the candidates are actually being influenced by the statements that are given around or about the candidates on those social media sites? Is it possible if everybody's giving positive comments about a news feed about a presidential candidate that you're more likely to like the candidate? Well, our next guest uh, has some research that he's called the Facebook effect. Dr. Paul R. Brewer is a professor of communication and political science and international relations. He's also the director of the University of Delaware Center for Political Communication, and he's on the phone with us uh, live to uh, to walk us through some of his research and let us know how social media is impacting our presidential election. Dr. Paul Brewer, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. 
Thank you for having me on. You bet. Paul, this is a to me this is it's a pretty fascinating thing that you've done for like th- this study because you really had to go you had to go pretty far to get the data on social media. Talk to us about what you did uh, with with Facebook to figure out the impact it has on our political views. Yes. So by way of background, over the past few election cycles, it's become practically obligatory for candidates to, to use social media, to use Facebook, to use Twitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the interesting things I think about these forms for communication is that they're interactive, that candidates can put messages out there, but they're dependent on ordinary people using them to disseminate them, to get them out there, and those ordinary users can have their own say. They can right. comment on Facebook posts, they can retweet. And so we were interested in the impact of what the candidates were doing, but also what ordinary users of Facebook could have on on their fellow citizens. And so what we did was we created a fake candidate, and we created a fake Facebook page for that (laughs) fake candidate, and we created fake Facebook users. And so then we got real people, and we had them look at the Facebook page and said, so suppose this, this candidate was running, and how likely would you be to vote for the candidate? What do you think about the candidate? Hmm. And so the candidate was always just saying, you know, I'm having these events, I have these T-shirts. So that was the same across all the different versions of the Facebook page. But we changed the comments. So sometimes the commenters were saying good things about the candidate. Right. And sometimes they were saying negative things about the candidate. (laughs) And then sometimes the candidate would reply back, and sometimes the candidate wouldn't. And so we were especially interested in who's comments matter more, the candidates or the ordinary users of Facebook. Right. And so what we found was that what the candidate said didn't didn't seem to matter at all. It was what the user said. Is so, Now, was it like a user? Because I've seen those. I've been uh, on Facebook, and then I've had somebody that was one of my friends posts a Facebook pitch about, you know, some politician, and they make a comment about it. So it's that kind of comment that they make that tee up the video or tee up the social media you know, experience for me. It's that comment that tends to sway me? Yes. And so here's the logic that we think is going on there. When a candidate, when you see what a candidate says, you know the candidate is trying to get your vote. The right. candidate is trying to persuade you. But we might assume that just ordinary average people don't have any kind of self-motivation, that what they say on Facebook is going to be more sincere. It has more kind of information value mm-hmm. to you. And bear in mind the situation you were talking about, it's someone you actually know, or at least someone you've actually friended on Facebook. Right. These were people that uh, the real voters had never heard of. Never met. As far as they know, these people don't exist. In fact, they didn't exist. Yeah. But what they said still (laughs) mattered. Now, on the other hand, the candidate was fake, too. And so we think it's probably easier to shape people's opinions and intentions about a fake candidate than a real candidate, because in the real world, there's other data. There's other data. For example, the biggest piece of information is usually the candidate's party. Right. Oh, true. We we deliberately didn't include that, but we think that's also realistic in a way because candidates on their websites and social media often don't emphasize their party affiliation because they're trying to appeal broadly. Yeah, right. Well, wow, this is interesting because – so it doesn't even matter in your research if – you knew the person. It's just the fact that they're commenting positively or negatively, and it sways us. It moves us. Yes. Now, when the candidate said something back, if they tried to respond to a negative comment, that didn't seem to help the candidate. It didn't really <laughs> seem to hurt the candidate either. But it didn't didn't sway the voters one way or another. So this could very well be that um, 
you know, if, you, if all of a sudden you have a lot of active, avid, rabid fans um, and you have a strong campaign and a lot of, I guess, uh, media, viral media out there and they're all talking positively, it just it could create a groundswell maybe. Yeah, I think that's one impl- implication. Obviously, people in real life, people have to get to the candidate's Facebook page. It has to be shared to them. So partly the candidate needs to do things to get that out there. But yeah, our our results suggest that if candidate campaigns can get ordinary citizens to share and say good things about them, that can help them. The, the flip side is true as well, that a candidate can be hurt by a grassroots campaign attacking that candidate. That's true, huh? And, and it doesn't even have to necessarily be factual. It just has to, if it has a lot of people commenting negatively, it's going to impact you. It even potentially opens the door for what we could call shenanigans, where there have been allegations that candidates have created what are called trolls, that is, you know, troll yeah. accounts, that to go around and say negative things about their opponent, or what are sometimes called sock puppets, where there are these fake accounts that are created just to say nice things about you. Mm-hmm. Do, do, do you get a sense that people can can discern the difference? Can they tell if if you're being trolled? I mean, there's there's funny trolls. I saw a guy that had some picture with the Eiffel Tower, and he was asking for some help um, from people that could use, uh, what's it called, um, Photoshop to help him, you know, do something with the Eiffel Tower, like like look, make it look like he was holding the Eiffel Tower. But then dozens of people started making just hilarious pictures of him with the Eiffel Tower. Yeah, and some... So it's trolling. They're in there trying to make, you know, problems. Yeah, certainly there, there are situations where it might be obvious especially if people pay close attention. But think about if you're on Facebook, how close attention are you paying to all of those things that show up in your feed? Right. You're watching a game and looking at Facebook. Exactly. So you might see something and, you know, get the message but not process it that deeply. And even when people do pay more close attention, I mean, how many stories have you heard about people sharing stories from The Onion thinking that they're real? (laughs) Or, you know, how much information out there on Facebook do people actually verify before they pass it along? Right. Well, and and I guess if it meets my criteria, meaning it meets my needs, it fulfills my view of how politics should be, I might just totally go with it and then, you know, share that. And I guess the the interesting thing is when people are sharing it with people they know, there's automatically kind of the referral process, you know? Yeah, so there's our, again, our our commenters, the, the participants in our study had no reason to believe those right. commenters. But in real life... You have this built-in reason to trust your Facebook friends, especially if, again, you don't think too closely about it. You know, mm-hmm. I know this person, and they're sharing something with me, so that gives it a little boost of credibility. Well, and maybe this research tells us why the electorate are so polarized, because I could take an article about something Ben Carson just said, and if somebody is conservative, they might forward it, and everybody talks positively and loves it. Negatively, the everybody that hates the Ben Carson comment talks negatively, but it might keep us polarized if we just keep forwarding the negative or the positive. Yes, and that's a concern that some people have about the impact of social media and politics. We know that at the at the level of Congress, that po- the politicians are more and more polarized. There's a lot of debate over whether the public is more polarized as well. Uh, you know, I think more and more people are getting their news from polarized sources, like mm-hmm. conservatives getting it from Fox, liberals getting it from MSNBC. If pe- more people are getting their news through their social networks on Facebook and Twitter, those networks may tend to be composed of like-minded people. 
And so that's going to reinforce the point of view that we already have rather than giving us exposure to exposing to opposing views. Right. Wow. Um, interesting stuff. We're, we're speaking with Dr. Paul Brewer about some of his research on the Facebook effect and the impact that social media may be having on our elections. Let's take a break. When we come back, I'm dying to know if this is if this is the advantage that Donald Trump has. Nobody gets more free media and more, uh, I mean, even zingers than, and again, some would be negative against Donald, but, you know, not negative to everyone. Some people believe everything he says. So is this the why there's such a rise in the Donald Trumps, the Bernie Sanders, the Ben Carsons? Are they playing social media better than maybe the rest? We'll find out. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you uh, understand better your election. We'll be right back. to the Matt Townsend Show. Facebook much? <laughs> you know, for a lot of people, it is the pretty much the primary source of their news. And according to our our guest, Dr. Paul Brewer from the University of Delaware, it's, it's also uh, where a lot of people are getting the majority of their information about their political candidates. And uh, that's an interesting thing because one of the things Dr. Brewer has studied is the impact that the comments that people make you know, below these articles, below these Facebook posts, if the comments are positive, we tend to feel more positive about the candidate. If the comments are negative, we tend to feel more negative toward the co- the, the candidate. So we're we're more easily swayed, apparently, by the just simply the comments that are being made. Not even so much by what the politicians may say in the comments, but more by just what people say that we don't even know. Uh, Dr. Paul Brewer is with us, and he is um, his interests include political communication, public opinion, and science communication. He's particularly interested in media framing and the citizens' use of information shortcuts to form judgment. And he's a professor at uh, University of Delaware's um, Communication and International Relations Department. He's also the director of UD's Center for Political Communication. Dr. Paul Brewer, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you. What a fun uh, teacher you must be, Paul, because you're talking about something that the students are probably really interested in. Yes, and of course one challenge is keeping up with the students' use of social media. Because, right. You know, you talk about Facebook. Like eight years ago, ten years ago, Facebook was a phenomenon among young people, and now 75% of the public yeah. uses Facebook. So that's a huge reach. Isn't that interesting? I mean, and now it's like my teenage boys, they wouldn't even go near Facebook anymore. It's like for old people. Yeah, and so I'm thinking what like Snapchat and Vine. That's and right, Facebook. and Vine. Yeah, I have a son that's crazy on Vine, which is the craziest thing ever. Um, hey, talk to us about uh, with social media. It seems like someone like Donald Trump has a huge advantage over everybody else because he's on the news every day. Yes, and so Donald Trump. If you think about traditional campaigns, traditional campaigns they spend money on ground organizations, they spend money on television ads. Donald Trump has barely spent any money, and he's leading in the national mm. polls in the Republican race. He's leading in a lot of the state polls. And Twitter, I think, has been uh, a very powerful tool in his campaign arsenal. You know, I was looking during the break. He's got between four and five million followers. Hillary Clinton does as well. Wow. And I can't, can't 
count how many stories I've seen about what Donald Trump has said on Twitter. Yeah. You think back to the first Democratic debate. So this is a night where all the attention is supposed to be focused on the Democratic candidates. And Donald Trump is live tweeting Uh his responses to the debate and getting news coverage. And and I guess, too, people are commenting on that. They're spreading the links. He'll say something bombastic or crazy, and that gets spread. I mean, that's that's the that's the benefit of the viral side of this. And it seems like more and more candidates are going for viral media. You know, that like Lindsey Graham, uh, Donald Trump gives away his phone number. Lindsey Graham then goes and makes a, a video, a YouTube video about, you know, breaking his phone, getting a new phone or whatever. Um, is is that helping the process or what does that do? Yeah, that was a pretty clever response by Lindsey Graham. It hasn't helped him too much. No, it hasn't. I I did hear about that and thought that was pretty clever. Uh, We actually did another study that has to do with this, uh, where you remember when Hillary Clinton joined Twitter, launched her Twitter account. And compared to Facebook, not that many Americans use Twitter, but it's uh, a social media that's used especially by people who are connected to the process, reporters. Yeah, the media elite. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And so what happens on Twitter, the media elite pay attention to. So Hillary Clinton joining Twitter became a big news story. And we were interested in what impact that had, not people following Hillary Clinton on Twitter, but the coverage of Hillary Clinton Interesting, yeah. And so we did another experiment where we had people watch a CNN story about Hillary Clinton joining Twitter or a CNN story about something else. And the people who watched the story about Hillary Clinton joining Twitter, they thought she was funnier. They thought she was more likable. And, of course, really? likability has always been one of those challenges that Hillary Clinton sure. faced as a candidate. Now, it didn't change their overall perceptions of her. And that may have to do with the fact that by now, people have a pretty good idea of what they think about Hillary Clinton. Yeah. But at the edges, it did change what they thought of what she was like as a person. Just that one story about how she was oh, using my Twitter. Heavens. Isn't that weird? Just the yeah. mere fact they're on Twitter. So what would what do you predict would happen if they found out she was on Pinterest? <laughs> now, <laughs> More it, trustworthy? It probably depends on, depends on how, how you use it and how you cover it. So in the story that we picked from CNN, it was talking about you know, kind of the lighter side of her. So it was talking about how she describes herself on Twitter as a pantsuit aficionado. <laughs> and it has that picture of her using the BlackBerry that so many Internet memes right. have used. And so, was, you know... Hillary Clinton was using Twitter to showcase uh, a certain side of her personality. And so that's what the coverage picked up on. Of course, when Donald Trump tweets these things attacking uh, other politicians, yeah, that's a different kind of message, and it could have an effect on what people think about Trump. It could also have an effect on what people think about those politicians. Yeah, right. And, of course, every now and then politicians or their campaign say something on Twitter that they probably shouldn't have, and that, that could hurt them because that can become a big news story as well. And then this is, this is an interesting thing with Facebook, too, because if it's true that negative comments beget more negativity toward the candidate, wouldn't it make sense that you pull off every negative comment? Uh, yes, and cam- campaigns can do that. So, you know, and do, you but do they do that? They should, uh, based they on should. your research. Based on our research, I, they should. You know, I imagine that they do. Yeah, I mean, yeah, uh, I guess that's too you, you censoring. But two, I guess you got to win. So that, that's yeah. how they'd frame it. And think about it. You know, it could be. I guess a candidate could run some small risk of a backlash if somebody notices, "Hey, my negative comments about this candidate are disappearing." 
but are, is the average person who encounters a post about a Facebook candidate really going to think, oh, well, there are a lot of positive things. I wonder if the candidate deleted some negative comments. Or right. going to take what's in front of them. Do, do you suggest this is true then for other things? Like if, if someone's a business owner, um, do you suggest that positive comments beget a more positive sense than negative comments? I mean, it's true on Amazon, right? Yes, and in, in, in every you know major site that I can think of, Amazon, Yelp, there have been some pretty big controversies about uh, commenting policies right. and people creating accounts just to say nice things or nasty things about you know nice things about themselves, nasty things about their opponents. You know, there are allegations. I have no idea of the the truth of them about Yelp. You know, sort of gaming the system to yeah. make money for themselves. Right, like like a, kind of a mafia. Yes, and then you know Amazon, I think, tries to police itself to weed out sock puppet mm-hmm. accounts that say positive things about uh, books that are on there, other products that are on there. But you know, I I use Amazon for shopping, and I I look at the comments. Right now, you know, it's funny. I go look for the negative comments because I I've like because I, I don't want everything to be five stars. If there is a one star or two star, I'd like to go know why. And then you can usually detect pretty quickly if it's just, you know, a bad event or if it's more constant. So maybe on Amazon, do they not let them erase negatives? Uh, I think that there's a process to that, you know, the person selling the product or the author of the book can can make some kind of protest about it. But I think a lot of those negative comments stay up there. Mm. Now, you mentioned something I think is interesting, that you pay particular attention to the negative comments. And I think we could link this back to politics. There's a fair amount of psychological research that suggests that negative information often is more attention-getting for people. Yeah. And so we didn't find any difference between the negative impact of a negative comment and the positive impact of a positive comment. But our design wasn't necessarily powerful enough to show which one... Mm had a bigger impact. And I, I, I would wonder, especially in a more realistic setting, whether the negative stuff really stands out more. Yeah, I, no, I, I totally agree. Do you sense, Paul, that Facebook, all the social media, is it elevating our electorate? Is it, is it better informing us? Or is it, is it more kind of just sensationalizing the process? Is it having us chase a lot of, you know, smoke? What do you sense overall? I could I could see a glass half empty, glass half full argument. I don't think that you know Facebook comment threads or YouTube comment threads have any great reputation as being fonts of deliberative public discourse. <laughs> and they can get pretty pretty nasty or pretty trivial pretty quickly. Yeah. On the other hand, a lot of people tune out politics, especially young people. That they you know they don't follow the news, they don't seek out the candidates' websites, they don't watch the debates. And so for a person who's only more casually interested or even not interested in politics, the presence of political information on social media does open up opportunities for people to get information that they wouldn't otherwise Mm. get. And I think that could be – it's not necessarily a benefit, but it can be a benefit. I'd rather have people getting information – uh, even if it's little bits and scraps of information, they're not having any information. Right. And is it is it just more of the same process? I mean, now we see uh, these candidates that want to get on SNL and they're slow jamming the news. Um, it seems like they're doing, I mean, even uh, Ben Carson was saying, there's just some things that aren't presidential. and But you almost need to go do them to get the virility and um, of the, and the viral nature of social media. I mean, if you can go get a really good clip on Jimmy Fallon, it can get to 
a lot of people. Yeah, so Ben Carson might be saying that's not presidential, but if you really, the, that genie got out of the bottle in the 70s when you have Richard Nixon going on The Tonight Show. That's right. And, and then solidified in the 90s when Bill Clinton goes on Arsenio Hall and plays saxophone. <laughs> that's right. You know, back 100 years ago, candidates, it was viewed as undignified for candidates to campaign at all. You know, they just sit on their doorstep and their minions would do things for them. That is long past. And the, the prevailing mindset now is, you know, candidates are going to go where they can reach the voters. And if that's Saturday Night Live, if that's The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, if that's uh, uh, podcasts that people are doing, like uh, I know Barack Obama did a podcast with Mark Moran, and if it's, if it's Between Two Ferns, then, <laughs> then they're going to do that because they want to, they want to reach... I forgot he did. That's as, true. As wide an audience as possible, especially they want to reach people who aren't going to be paying attention to, say, meet the press. That's right. Well, and again, Barack Obama, I think, brilliantly mobilized the troops. I mean, he got more people out that would never vote. And so certain – I guess you need to know your audience and uh, do what you can to move your audience. Yeah, so Barack Obama's presidential campaigns, I think, really uh, – the, the model so far of how to use social media and new media and non-traditional media in a presidential campaign. And he had a lot of very well-informed – people to help him, you know. Mm -hmm. the, the Obama campaign had the people from Silicon Valley who knew what they were doing and had you know, their, their uh, Project Narwhal. That's right. They And they built that huge whatever million person database. And I mean, then, then all of a sudden you've got these people in a regular communication forum where you can get comments. And I guess, too, there's just the simple perception if you're communicating with the Obama campaign, you might actually believe you're impacting the campaign. <laughs> Yes, and I think my favorite example of the way that the Obama campaign used new media was in 2008. You know, for for decades, candidates have been buying billboard space. Right. In 2008, the Obama campaign was the first presidential campaign to buy billboard space in computer games, hmm. computer car racing games. You'd be going down your virtual road, and then there'd be a billboard for Barack Obama. Oh, my heavens. Isn't that interesting? And I bet the rest were thinking, what a waste. What a waste. But these kids it, aren't going to vote. It, it might have been a waste, but campaigns these days, they're, it's harder and harder to reach voters because mm -hmm. the media are more fragmented. Uh, people aren't, aren't, you know, back in the 70s, if you put an ad on the big three broadcast networks, you'd reach almost all the public. Right. Now that's not certainly not true. So you have to diversify the way that you're trying to reach voters. So what, what words, do, they might not have worked, but campaigns have to try these things. Yeah. What do you tell your students and what would you suggest to our, our audience about if they really want to be informed, how should they go about uh, learning and, and creating um, a view, a, a li kind of a, a life view or a political view? How do they go about building that if they're not already kind of enculturated into one? I think the the single thing that I would suggest the most is to to follow and look at a wide variety of information outlets. So, you know, certainly look at what the candidates themselves are doing on their websites in the debates because on the evening news or in other formats, you don't really get to hear the candidates talk in their own voice too much. Even on shows like uh, The Daily Show or The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, and when candidates appear on those shows, you actually get to hear them speak for minutes rather than a 10-second soundbite. Mm -hmm. But also, uh, because there are these concerns about the media becoming increasingly polarized and people living in bubbles where information that disagrees with them doesn't get to them, 
of examining media, following media with a wide variety of viewpoints, both kind of the high media, New York Times is your Wall Street journals, but also you know, a broad variety of outlets, yeah. whether it's satirical, whether it's entertainment-oriented, and just getting exposed to as many different views as possible. I mean, I think like even tonight, the debate tonight, you could just go watch the Fox News interpretation of it or you could go watch, you know, MSNBC's interpretation of it. And it might be smart to see both. Yes. And I think one of the neat things that's happening, and I've seen some research on this, especially young people, they consume – and I do this myself now. When I watch these debates, I'm watching the debates, but I'm also following what people are saying about it on Twitter or on BuzzFeed. Uh, because, you know, it's it's multiple interpretations of the same event. Right, right. And and I I had never, like, delved into that, and I love it now, getting two or three or four or five different opinions about the debates because, boy, it, it does give you a completely different sense. There's certain times I'll see a candidate say something, and I'm like, in my head, I'm thinking, that's nuts. <laughs> and, then, and then I go to one station that tends to favor the candidate, and like, no, he's deity. And then the next one, no, he's psycho. Um, there's value. There's total value in that. Hey, one thing before we leave, I got to ask you, what happened to Joe Biden? Come on, I, Paul. You're from uh, Delaware. Yeah, you know, obviously, we, we talk a lot about him here at UD. I bet you do. And, uh, you know, obviously, he went through a personal tragedy. Yeah. He talked a lot about that in his decision. And also, you know, if uh, the Hillary Clinton campaign looks like it's in really good shape right now. <laughs> how do you topple and that? How do you, how do you top that? And I think if you know he did hold off a long time on making that decision, uh, an unusually long time for a campaign to be waiting until you know almost November uh, to to make a decision on whether to run. And after Hillary Clinton's performance in the debate and her standing in the polls, mm. perhaps it looked like there just wasn't yeah. there wasn't really an opening. And if that changes in the future. Uh, then maybe yeah, he made a good case, don't you think? He's like, okay, I'm not going to run, but just so you know, I'm totally ready to if you need me. Yes, that's not, <laughs> you know, that's given the situation, that's not a bad place. To that's be. not a bad place to be. Where I guess I assume everyone in Delaware was polling for him. Yeah, I think it would have been exciting for UD and for the state of Delaware if he ran, but that's of course great. he has to make make his decisions about right. what's best for him. Well, now family. he can come be an adjunct faculty member. Well, I'm sure he'd be welcome here. <laughs> awesome. Good stuff. Dr. Paul Brewer, appreciate you and the time uh, you've given us. And good luck again on your research. Keep it up. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. You bet. We'll have you back. Dr. Paul Brewer uh, from the University of Del- Delaware and the Facebook Effect. Folks, it's impacting us. Whether you, whether you know it or not, whether you're even paying attention to it or not, simple little comments. They might be swaying you toward one candidate over another. We'll take a break, come back to a quick wrap-up of this first hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us, folks. Trying to give you the news you need when you need it. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Apparently, it's like uh, 3,500 to 4,500 text messages a a month is what, you know, a teenager receives. I think that's a teenage girl, actually. About 4,500 text messages a month. 
So we're, they're being influenced by social media. Facebook influences us, especially think about it. If you turn there regularly to just see what's going on, then you're you're going to be influenced by it. And if it's true, then, that uh, the comments matter and people pay attention to the comments, then can I just challenge all of us? What would happen if we went out and started making more positive comments on Facebook pages? Not just in the political world, please, but on everything. If you like those really powerful stories about a hero, for example, that we always talk about on the show, if you like a good hero story, why don't you share those stories more? Why don't you share more stories about things that are positive, about families that are doing something right? Share more positive joy. Share more of the the good stuff. And hey, maybe if if it's true that comments matter, then maybe having more positive comments about more important topics and more posts on more important topics would actually elevate society. Heaven forbid – We use our social media to elevate each other and society instead of tearing each other down. You've all experienced, I'm sure, one of those feed, uh, you know, in your local newspaper, you hear a story and it just goes crazy with negative talk and people just bad-mouthing each other. Even on those, you can go in there, leave a really positive comment, and if I were you, I'd I'd do a little hit and run. I'd hit with positivity and I'd get out of there. (laughs) Because you're probably going to get shredded by a bunch of people that want the negativity. But it doesn't mean you shouldn't still leave the positive messages, right? we got to change it instead of just hoping that the people that are constantly afflicted with negativity, thinking they're going to change it, they're not. So let's just, you know, promote the positive. That's the goal of the show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break. Come back next hour. More ideas, more tools to help you find the good in the world. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. This is the show where we give you the information you need, the tools to get through this crazy thing called life. You know, we're all born. We've got a bunch of ideas. We all come different. We come with strengths. We come with weaknesses. And yet we still need to make it through life. And it doesn't, uh, you know, we don't come with a manual. So we've got to know what to do and how to deal and how to interact Today we got a great topic. We're going to be talking about um, disability awareness and, and understanding better how to understand people with disabilities and, and see what we – and try to figure out you know, what, we, what we shouldn't say but we do say, um, what we can do to make, to make people feel more comfortable and what maybe we shouldn't be doing that we don't even know we're doing. When it comes to having um, someone with a disability around us, joining us in just a few minutes will be some members of uh, Brigham Young University's uh, – an organization here at Brigham Young University that uh, is is actually this week working on Disability Awareness Week and uh, focusing on it to help educate the students here at BYU. So I thought, hey, let's get them in here and uh, and teach the rest of the world. Also uh, today, you know, big uh, – boy – 
if you if you call this exciting, a big political GOP you know shootout tonight. There's going to be the debate for the GOP, the third debate, and uh, so get excited for that. And even if you're not into politics, it might make some really really interesting audio. But before we do that, holy cow, folks, Chewbacca is in court. Yeah. Star Wars. Chewbacca is in court because of a lack of ID while he was driving. By the way, he was driving Darth Vader to a Ukraine election. The Star Wars character Chewbacca. (laughs) Ben, shut your mouth, brother. Is that you, Ben? Oh, sorry. You're breathing heavy. The Star Wars character Chewbacca has been dragged into court in Odessa in perhaps the most surreal episode in the local elections across the Ukraine because, uh, you know, people are saying, hey, this is dirty tricks. The man inside the costume was fined for the administrative offense of not being able to produce identification documents. So imagine a cop pulls you over, taps on your window. Hey, sir, I need to see your your docs. Uh, pardon, I don't understand what you're saying. <laughs> Have you, sir, have you been drinking? Uh, the guy next to you sounds like he's breathing heavy. <laughs> okay, I'm going to need you to step out of the car there, Chewy. Can you imagine this? Anyway, um, the police had earlier dragged Chewbacca from a polling station and put him in a van after accusing him of disrupting proceedings. The person in the costume said he had been there to support Darth Vader, who was attempting to vote. What? What? I can't support my friend? What? I'm Chewbacca. Crazy. Darth Vader um, has been apparently in the Ukrainian election, a lot of people dress up in full costume, right? Don't know why, but uh, many there's many Vaders apparently that have been voting. And these people need to present documents so that we know you're legit. But uh, one statue of Vladimir Lenin was given, if you remember, the makeover of Darth Vader. Because people were tired of Lenin, they changed the statue to look like Darth Vader. This is how big of a deal Vader is. And Vader, of course, can't drive his own car. Hello? He's a Sith Lord. So instead, he hires Chewbacca. (laughs) So let's just get very real here. You thought you had it bad? You thought the GOP was driving you crazy? Some have called it a circus with so many people running. Just be grateful. They're not running as Star Wars characters. Even though there are hundreds of other people running for president, some of them might be Star Wars characters. Anyway, um, also, did you hear about the Titanic cracker? A Titanic cracker sold for $23,000. Oh, you know, when I found this story, I thought this may happen. <sighs> oh, this song is so bad. You can just see, just imagine with your mind's eye, a little wafer cracker just floating well, on the ocean. It never made it in the water, <laughs> hence the fact that it's still around. It's a biscuit that survived the 1912 sinking of the Titanic. And then it's it, a biscuit. It's sold for $23,000 at auction. The cracker, mm, oh. it came from an ill-fated ship's lifeboat survival kit and was kept by a couple that traveled on the steamship 
that rescued the survivors. The Greek man reportedly purchased the rare food item for 23K. Look, I have a cracker. Shh. But you can't bet how much I paid for it. Listen to this. this no, let's not. Doesn't this just make you warm and cozy? <sighs> okay. Do you have any Chewbacca noises? Yeah, please. A little, little palate cleanser here. <laughs> Maybe Chewbacca can <laughs> sing with the Titanic. Oh, there's Lord Vader. Totally different spirit when you check it out. So there's the news uh, from Dr. Matt. Let's go to the headlines from our own Terry South. Find out what's going on around the world. Thanks, Matt. Tonight, as we talked about earlier, Republican debate number three, live from the University of Colorado. Part of that debate will be Senator Rand Paul, who has been trying to gain ground in the polls. Recently, he live-streamed a day in the life of Rand Paul for all those who wanted to watch him walk around on the Internet. Uh, how many actually did watch that? I don't know. I didn't follow the story up because I didn't think... It, Dozens it, of people. There were some clips on there where he was just like, why do you think I would do something stupid like this? You know. <laughs> well, uh, the White House Republican leaders of Congress reached a budget compromise. Many conservatives are not happy with the deal. There's a lack of spending cuts, the, the raising of the debt ceiling until President Obama's out of office. Senator Rand Paul has gone a step further than just voicing his opinion. He has vowed to filibuster the bill in the Senate, especially the provision about raising the debt ceiling. He says, I will filibuster the new debt ceiling bill. I, uh, it is uh, horrible, hard for me not to use profanity in describing it. He came close calling it a steaming pile of legislation. Whoa. Paul said he plans to make the Senate work over Halloween weekend, allowing the House Freedom Caucus time to try and sink the bill. Well, you know who's not going to like that? Paul Ryan. He wants to go hang out with his kids, right? (laughs) That's right. I saw that. I thought that was funny. Two new polls out of Iowa. Caucus goers show that Hillary Clinton holding a massive lead over runner runner-up Bernie Sanders in the race for the Democratic presidential nomination. Monmouth University surveyed in Iowa came up with Clinton at 65%, nearly tripling Sanders 24%. Mm. So the Democrats really isn't as interesting a, a race. No. But it's a race nonetheless. Mass scores on the National Assessment of Education Progress declined this year for the first time in the test's 25-year history. The national exam was taken randomly by select 4th and 8th graders for this year's test. 4th grader students their math scores fell by two points. Eighth graders fell by three points if they got the math right. Yeah, well, who knows? I mean, Can you trust it? Apparently, we're slipping. The education secretary, Arnie, whatever, he's outgoing because he's stepped down. Yeah. But he says this isn't a reason to be overly concerned. This is one test, one snapshot. Yeah. Come on, just one. This isn't a, a trend. One picture does not. Unless it uh, does. Story make. On the very first pitch, we talked about New York Mets pitcher Matt Harvey in game one of the World Series Throws the ball, Kansas City Royals hitter, knocks it into the, the very far reaches of the park, gets an in-the-park home run, first time in, since 1929 that they had cool. an in-the-park home run. And uh, they went on, of course, 14 innings in the game. Into right, Granderson back, Escobar tags. Here comes Escobar. The Royals win game one. Hosmer drives home. The winner in the 14. Oh. Sound from Fox Sports. Royals now up one nothing on the Mets. 5-4 win in 14 in Game 1. Game 2 set for night, tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern, head-to-head mm. with the Republican debate. I'm going with the game. With baseball. In Indiana over the weekend, a hunter became the hunted when a woman was shot by her dog. The dog's name? Trigger. 
Police say 25-year-old Allie Carter was hunting for waterfowl, and she placed her 12-gauge shotgun down on the ground. The safety was not on. Trigger stepped on the gun, shot, and the police believe it was all an accident, of course. Oh, come Release, on. <laughs> releasing her namesake and shooting Carter in the foot. Carter no, was taken to the hospital. Injuries through her left foot and toes. She's been treated and released. No, she's walking down the path. Next thing you hear is, <laughs> the dog cocked the gun, and she's like, Trigger? Is that you? We need to have a discussion about my dog food. (laughs) Trigger, put the gun down. Trigger, no. Bear, no. (laughs) Why are you doing this? So, yeah. You give me kibble. The dog's name, Trigger. I found a couple stories over the last few days that um, (laughs) if you take the name out of it, it's who it's, cares? It's, Someone, not, yeah. it's like traffic violations and stuff. But an interesting name Trigger. of the person driving the car makes the traffic violation all the more interesting. Which tells and you, in this you case, name your dog better names. Trigger the dog. This story brought to you by the National Rifleman's Association. There you go. Hmm, NRA. Good trigger. Good trigger. Trigger. Safety's on. Crazy. <laughs> Crazy stories. And you know what, folks? This is your world. Right? Who who would have ever thought when the gun was invented that someday a dog would shoot its owner? <laughs> That's just classic. Hey, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're, we will be discussing um, disability awareness. So when you when you have coworkers that are disabled and what really constitutes a disability, we're going to be learning from um, those in the know, from some experts here at BYU uh, who are today trying to organize the university to celebrate. Um, and and focus on Disability Awareness Week. We'll take a, a break, and when we come back, learning everything we can about uh, you know treating people um, in in a way that they deserve to be treated, and seeing people as as humans, as healthy, as whole humans, even if they possess a disability. We'll take a break, folks. More when we come back right here on the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. But you gotta keep your head up, oh, and you can let your head down, hey. You gotta keep your head up, oh, and you can let your head down, hey. I know it's hard, no, it's hard to remember sometimes. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, life is hard anyway, right? And and everybody comes, I always joke, you know, we all just have a different dose and a different kind of... Uh, a, a different helping of DNA. And every one of us, some are blessed with great DNA, and some of us are struggling with with our lives and, and uh, what we've been handed. Some have accidents that cause disabilities. Some might be born with a disability. And so I wanted today to, to talk about um, how we, just as as members of you know the world, fellow members, how we could take care of each other a little bit better, and especially make sure we understand better people with disabilities. And I found out that on BYU campus, they are celebrating Disability Awareness Week, and there's an organization called Delta Alpha Pi, which is an honor society for students that have disabilities, and we asked a couple of um, their representatives to join us today. Dr. Lene Valentine is joining us, and uh, Peter uh, Weitzel 
is uh, is here as well. And uh, Peter's a student. Dr. Lene Valentine, are you on the faculty here at BYU? I'm an advisor, yes. You're the advisor, the faculty advisor, and you are from, you're a licensed marriage and family therapist and uh, coordinator for learning emotional and attention disorders. We oh where have you been young lady? We need you on this show because there's <laughs> a lot you. of topics thank we could you. be yeah. talking to you about. And Peter, thanks for being here, man. Thank you for having me. So fill us in. Um, you are celebrating this week disability awareness. Is that just at BYU or is that a nationwide thing? It's a nationwide thing. And and what are like what is your goal? What what are you trying to do when it comes to people with disabilities? What's your purpose for the week? The purpose for the week, and it's Disability Awareness Week, is for everyone, yeah. not just people with it's disabilities. everybody. We want to educate everyone um, to be more understanding and more inclusive of people with disabilities and to not see disability as something negative or burdensome or we right. should have pity for you, yeah. but but to... To recognize that, wow, people with disabilities have amazing talents just like everyone right. else and can, can and want to contribute to society just like everyone else. They want to get an education, but sometimes there are barriers that get mm-hmm. in the way, and we can all play a part in removing those barriers. Yeah. Is it, Peter, when you think about this, you, you have a disability. Talk to us about what your disability is. Okay. So uh, I'm dyslexic, so I've uh, known about that since I was about in middle school, and I've pretty much known I've had issues with reading since I was trying to read. Um, And it's been a blessing and a challenge. No, isn't that the case, though, isn't Mm -hmm. it, with a disability like that? Because you're at BYU. BYU has one of the hardest requirements to get in, really high academic standards, and you're here. Yep, and I'm doing well. And you're doing well. Um, And for me, I look at it as a blessing and a Curse because there are days when I'm lazy. I wish I didn't have it. Uh, sure. Um, but I've learned so much from being dyslexic. Yeah. Uh, that I don't want to. I don't want that to change about my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I learned the value of hard work and patience um, from being dyslexic. I have a close close friend who is incredibly smart and much smarter than me, um, but he struggled. Yeah. His first two years of school because he never had to apply himself in a college setting before. It's true. And I never had that issue because... You've had to battle the whole time. Because I've... I've, While I've never struggled, struggled, yeah. I've always had to work at it hard. Well, and it seems like with disabilities, and you would know this, Dr. Valentine, um, the psychological toll, because you're constantly evaluating yourself compared to everyone else, and you, you feel inferior, you seem... You, I mean, you may not naturally do whatever everyone else can just easily do. What does it do? What's the or the psychic toll it takes? Right. Lots of students that I work with will, you know, they might have ADHD or whatever, and they'll come in and say, it's bad enough having the ADHD, but then I'm not doing as well as I want to, and then that causes me to be depressed, or I'll go to an exam and I feel anxious. So it does create depression and yeah. anxiety and things yeah. that just compound the problem or feed into the problem. And so learning to just accept, it does take me longer, and I might not get as good a grade, but wow, I am achieving pretty amazing feats with this. We had a professor on, a pediatric, um, what was he, psychiatrist, I think, that was talking about if your child has ADD or ADHD, don't think they can't do anything. They can do everything the same. They they can do anything. It's just going to take them longer. Right, and even you, you should even demand 
that they're going to eventually do it. If it, even if it takes you 15 years, right. you're going to learn how to manage your own life. Right. So, so I'll tell a student, don't take 15 or 18 credits. That's right. too much right. for you. Take 12 and be okay with that. Uh-huh. And it might take you a semester longer, but but that in the long run, that won't cause you to get depressed and anxious because you're not keeping up with everyone mm. because you can't keep up with everyone. It seems like we think that the, the, a disability is someone in a wheelchair. That's right. kind of how we have framed it. Somebody with a, like a severe physical disability. But like you're saying, Peter, it's, it's as simple as, as dyslexia. We had a guest on yesterday mm-hmm. that is a really well-known speaker that does, has a great life and is – he called it Lisdexic. <laughs> because he's dyslexic, but he himself has succeeded incredibly. But he he talked about he had to change his way of thinking. Is that what you've had to do? Yeah, um, especially with Delta Alpha Pi. Something my I guess my personal mission is letting people know that there are millions of people out there um, who have disabilities, but no one ever knows or notices mm-hmm. because they've either learned to adapt for themselves, how to manage it with themselves. Or it's something you just don't see. Right. Whether that's a cognitive disability like dyslexia or some of these other ones or an emotional, whether someone's depressed. Yeah, social, just, social anxiety, depression. Yeah, and those have effects on people, but they learn to manage them, mm-hmm. and they're highly successful. And unfortunately, in the world today, a lot of the times it's, if you're disabled, you're broken. Right. You can't you can't provide for yourself. You can't be a computer contributing member in society, and that's not true. There are so right. many examples of people who live their normal days, uh, live their normal lives, and there are also examples of overcoming and achieving great great things. Oh yeah, I mean Delta Alpha Pi is an honor society. So the mere fact that you're you're sitting here with dyslexia representing an honor society. Tells everybody, yeah, you're, hey, I'm just like you. I just have to do it differently. And instead of the 18-hour credit load, which all my friends are doing 16 hours this semester, so I thought I'd do it. Right. You have to be more realistic. Right. Talk about the range of disabilities that you see. I mean, because we, and it's, I guess that's what's so hard is we don't see you have dyslexia. So all of a sudden, we think you're just not trying hard or you just don't focus or you're lazy. Did you get that a lot growing up? Um... Not really. Good. Um, I was lucky. I'm, I'm kind of gifted in the other areas, so people would notice, hey, this kid is trying really hard yeah. in these areas. Uh-huh. And he seems to be putting about the same amount of effort in reading and writing. He's just really bad at it. <laughs> He's just not good. Um, so a lot of my teachers would like question, like, what's going on? Yeah. I had lots and lots of testing, and eventually we found out I was dyslexic. We knew something was going well, what on. What a blessing, finally, to know. Yeah. Because then you can start um, taking steps and yeah. actions to now, um, now you build a plan, I guess. No. That's a big deal. Um, but I guess, too, on campus, <laughs> you, Dr. Valentine, you, I, I assume you also work with people in wheelchairs, with other disabilities? Yeah, we have people who specialize more in that area. But um, we have lots of physical disabilities besides wheelchairs. Um, there's lots of chronic illness diseases that are considered disabilities like Crohn's disease uh-huh. or fibromyalgia yeah. or Chronic Lyme's fatigue, yeah. disease. Oh, no, totally. And I had no idea how those affect people. I help affect people that um, one, one student told me that with fibromyalgia, it's like waking up every day with this really severe case of the flu. Your body aches, you're in pain, and you live with that day by day. Mm-hmm. 
And so our, our student that has chronic migraines just have, has tried every medication, every treatment, and nothing works. She just lives with chronic migraines. Mm. So that's hard as a student. You're trying to focus and read and study and do all right. this stuff, and it's just really difficult. And nobody knows they have a disability. They just think. Well, and they just think they're they just think they're less than. Yeah. Well, or they just try to act normal. But how, like if you have chronic migraines, how are you supposed to keep reading all day and keep up with your class? And so so what do you sit down and teach these students? I mean, they've got to be realistic. Huh? So, so it's learning to manage your disability like you learn to manage any chronic illness that that um, sleep is important. Most of my students do not sleep. <laughs> so I really work on you've got to sleep. That will yeah. help a lot. Right. Um, working on sleep and diet and exercise and self-talk and and learning that um, I, can, I can manage this. I'm going to have a little different trajectory than some people, but I can still have a, an effective, productive life. And when they learn to accept it and not feel ashamed about it and not hide it, that actually is a great step forward for oh, them. Yeah. And that's part of Delta Alpha Pi also is to, rec- to erase that stigma so that people with disabilities will start identifying mm-hmm. and admitting, okay, I have this. And, and they can talk to professors about it instead of trying to hide it. Because so many students tell me, I don't want my professor to think I'm a slacker. I don't yeah. think my professor is thinking I want to ask for things I don't deserve. And it's like, it's okay to ask for these things. You know, you're not being a slacker to just say, I need a little extra time to do an exam because I process more slowly. Yeah. And um, so just it, it's kind of liberating, I think, for students to actually be around other students right. and admit that. Well, I mean, who cool. wants to join a club for people with disabilities? Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but see, that's it. It's almost like you think it's like the Misfit Toys Club. Right. But the reality is I would love my freshmen, if they had dyslexia, to talk to seniors mm-hmm. that have the skills and the tools and they've adapted and they've learned. How powerful and empowering could that be to have you in the same group sharing your best practices? Right, to have some mentors and some oh. role models. That is, that's the whole point. That and it normalizes it. Now it's normal. Now mm-hmm. it's just, see, you're just, and the funny thing again, I'm assuming most of the disabilities that you were explaining, we don't, they're not even obvious. Right. So when someone's at work, you got to be careful because if someone's not performing, don't assume you know why. They're not a slacker. There's a reason. Right, right. And, and we've kind of created this society that has these certain standards that that we measure success by. And well, even even in the education community, we're talking about we need to make the educational system more accessible. And there's this whole concept of universal design, mm-hmm. where we make we create a syllabus for a class with a more inclusive instead of the, we have these rigid rigid standards that you have to meet these rigid right. rigid standards to be successful when in fact you can be successful in lots of ways mm-hmm. it takes a little more work in the beginning but in the end it really works so to create a whole society that says who says this is the only way you can be right. successful exactly or you have to work 80 hours a week to be successful right. or you have to have a phd to be successful right. there's lots of ways so to create that attitude of there are lots of ways and we shouldn't judge well if you're not doing it my way or this way then, then you're, there's broken. you're broken 
Oh, it's so true. So true. Let's do this. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Lene Valentine and Peter Weitzel here at Brigham Young University. We're trying our best to uh, to understand just kind of the broad array of what is disability, what would what would constitute a disability, but both sides of it too. If you are disabled, what are some things you should be doing to manage your life better and in a healthier way, more productive way for yourself? But for the rest of us, how we should... Um, maybe be blowing up some of the myths. When we come back, I'd love to talk to them both about blowing up the myths of uh, when we're handling or, or talking or working with somebody that has disabilities. We don't have to see them as sick and broken, and we can be a lot more just normal with each other and I guess more appreciative and loving with each other as well. We'll take a break, continue the discussion. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, today we're talking about disability awareness, and uh, joining us on the in the show in our studio today, Dr. Lene Valentine, who's a licensed marriage and family therapist, coordinator for learning, emotional, and attention disorders, and advisor for the Delta Alpha Pi Honor Society here at Brigham Young University, and also also Peter Weitzel. Not Weitzel, unless you're speaking German, like my producers do. And uh, and by the way, Peter speaks German as well. Peter is uh, a member of the DAP Society, Delta Alpha Pi Honor Society, which is for disabled students. It's the honor. It's the honor society. Yep. And you're you're one of the big dogs. Try to be <laughs> president. He's the president. <laughs> That's so cool. And uh, you have dyslexia. But I thought, hold it, Peter. I thought people with disabilities couldn't be on the honor society. Um, it's harder. You blew it up, though, didn't you, man? It, we try. And and it's not even just dyslexia. It's It could be anything that slows us down, that disables us, anything that puts a barrier. It could be an illness. It could be an emotional issue. Like we were talking during the break, Dr. Valentine said, you know, a lot of times we thought it's just a physical disability or a visual or a hearing disability. But now it could be emotional disabilities. Uh, uh, it could be anxieties, depression, um, attention deficit disorder. It could be pretty much anything. Mm-hmm. I had a client here. I need your help. That goes to this to this school. A wonderful young woman, uh, probably eight. I think eighteen years old. Talented, fabulous. Was a cheerleader. Active, strong. Fell. Has a had a head injury. Um. Major concussion. Actually, then got better, had another major concussion. Now has had two or three major concussions, came to BYU, got in, which is really hard to do, especially in Utah, and is loving it, signed up for her 16 hours of credit as a freshman, and it's killing her. And what she's realizing is her head injuries are real, and Mm -hmm. they are slowing her down, and she can't. She just can't quite synthesize what she's learning and, and, and get the learning out very fast. So a lot of the reading and the writing, it's really hard for her. So I said, you know, they, there's a Disabilities Act that says that they got to somehow accommodate and, and help you figure that out. So 
You need to go talk to somebody. So if somebody out there in listener land is have their kids suffering from any type of disability, where do they go, Professor Valentine? What do they do? So they should come to the University Accessibility Center. <clears throat> I don't think we're well-known, even though we try to advertise. Does every university, so any university across the country would have some type of accessibility Uh center? It's the um, American Disability Act that we should. So by law for however 30 years or whatever, this has been out there, right? Right. And that's one of the things we're trying to change, that we're not doing this just because we're legally forced to. We right. really want to create a society yeah. that's inclusive. Everyone is accepting of this. We <laughs> and should. And don't feel like, oh, I have to do this because of law. Right. But, um, but yes, come to our office, and um, we do require that you have documentation of your disability, and most students can get that fairly easily. And then we will work with the student to, to feel okay about yeah, that's what talking mean, huh? about that disability with classmates and professors and to just be okay accepting it themselves that to be realistic okay i've just had two or three concussions i need to maybe ease into school and only take 12 credits Mm -hmm. and see how that goes and if that goes well maybe i can add credits the next semester but don't just jump in assuming you can do what you were able to do before is it um i guess that's the bigger thing isn't it is you have to you have to you still have to go kind of negotiate with your professor one on one. But if you haven't accepted the disability, then it's harder to negotiate. Is that what you run into, Peter? Yeah. Um, I think healing starts with you. Yeah. Um, and 16 credits at BYU is hard for anyone. It doesn't right. matter uh, how far along you are, if you're disabled or not disabled. Um, BYU makes you fight for your grades for sure. Uh, and uh, if. If you're not willing to talk and advocate for yourself, it becomes so much harder. Uh, my experience has been every time I've talked to a professor, they're like, oh, cool. Yeah, just let me know what I need to do to help you, and we'll make it work. That's great. And, and it might be you you just need to know what you need yeah. and be ready to tell them. I need more time to do a paper. If, you, if I need to do a reading assignment on the test, I'm going to need more time to be able to read and to figure it out. So that's what that's what you've got to figure out. And if you if you could do it in college, it's a great place to learn it. Yeah. You're going to need to do it in your work, right? So, Definitely. and so really, this is just kind of maturing in your disability, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Do you notice that parents um, maybe have even disabled more their disabled child? I mean, I see a lot of parents might overcompensate and might make it harder even for them to do certain things. I think there is some truth to that because they've been protective and they've kind of had to fight for their children to get mm-hmm. things done. But at, at some point in college is a great time to transition and let the student do that fighting for themselves. Yeah. And to to and that, and that gives them some confidence in themselves to be able to do that. And most professors are pretty understanding. I've had some students that are really anxious mm-hmm. and to talk to a professor is <laughs> almost impossible but so so we'll we'll create a letter that they can give the professor we don't say what their disability is so i encourage them it'd be nice if you could divulge to yeah. the professor what your disability is but we don't tell them um, but it does legitimize that they qualify for these accommodations and then they can say you know sometimes i'm going to need a little extra time to do an assignment or on an exam and then you talk to the professor about what would be a reasonable amount of time mm-hmm. and you work that out and they actually feel really good when I they bet. do that. They've negotiated it. Mm-hmm. And and then they don't feel like they're being given something. Right. They're just mm-hmm. making it so it can work. Right. I love that. 
And sometimes a depressed student, you know, they'll go along. A lot of them tell me, I start the semester out really well, and then my depression will kick in, and I'm wiped out for two weeks, and I don't do anything. Mm. So that can look like lazy, slacker. But if they'll go and explain, this is how depression works. It works. It kind of cycles in and out, and sometimes I do well, and other times I'm just down and can't do anything. So during that downtime, I need to be able to recoup that somehow. And most of them say, I know I can recoup it if you'll work with me. That's and most great. professors will. Does it um, – I, I guess this is growing up even for the professors like you're saying. It so is. eventually we can then create a culture where why not everybody succeed? Right. It's just we have to be willing to like not bake the cake the one way that we always bake the cake. Right. Mm-hmm. Maybe turn it into a pie today. <laughs> Little – yeah. And and we're not Bloody. asking and we're not asking professors to reduce the standards of no their class way. or to make it well, I'm just going to have to make my class easier. We're not asking no. them to do that, but just make it possible. Mm-hmm. With some modifications, it, it can be possible for more well, people. On the other side of the equation, certain things they're going to bring that won't be brought without them there. Discussions could become That's more right. rich and better and just insights could be more profound by accommodating Mm-hmm. We always think of accommodation as like you know, lowering the bar, right? And it's not. No, it's like you got, but you got to get someone in a wheelchair in the room, yeah. and once they're in the room, they're fine. Then they can have a voice, and now all of a sudden, I've done that. I had a building once that uh, didn't. It wasn't. It was my office, but the building didn't accommodate wheelchairs. So my client would call me, and we would go down, and I'd pull him up twenty stairs. Wow! And then we'd get him in the room, but without him in the room, but he would bring so much light to the conversation mm-hmm. that it's like not having him in this workshop was horrible. He's worth pulling up the stairs and down the stairs every time. Actually, he'd go down on his own, which scared me to death. But um, <laughs> but it was just – it's amazing. It's not lessening. It's it's actually – it's just it's just making a bigger circle right. that mm-hmm. we can all participate in. And I, I like what you said. There's so much we can learn from people that have a different life experience than oh. we do. And we had a, a session on Monday about deaf culture and hearing impaired people and people with hearing impairments. And um, – there, there are things about that culture that I really like because with American Sign Language, you, you can't beat around the bush and right. sugarcoat things. It's direct. You, it's just direct. They call it death bluntness. <laughs> but, but I kind of like that idea yeah. of directness. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah. That's the word. That's the sign. Okay. And, and it's, it's like we could all benefit from that mm-hmm. and not beat around the bush and take forever and just say it how it is. Absolutely. What are some mistakes the rest of us make? When it comes to dealing with people with disabilities, I mean, a lot of times I don't even know, like, I don't even know, even the word disabilities doesn't sound right to me. Just humans with with challenges. Right. I don't know what you call it. but We'll have to come up with a new word. We need a better word that doesn't <laughs> invoke a weakness. Peter, what have you seen that, that the rest of us need to be more aware of? Um, I think first and foremost that comes to mind is they've come, most people that you're probably going to come in contact with have either come to terms or are very used to being in yeah. their situation. Right. Um, odds are, if you're if they're out and about and they're a happy person, they're probably not terribly torn up. Yeah. Super torn up about their disability. That being said, you have to judge your situations per case by case. And if something just happened, that might not be the case. Mm-hmm. But most of the time, I'd say most people are willing to talk about what's what's yeah. going on in their life. Um, the important things, being dyslexic. You could ask me all day about being dyslexic, and I don't care. It's, it doesn't offend you. It doesn't offend me. Um, but judging you would. 
Like, don't don't judge me for it. I guess I'm laid back and I don't care because yeah. whatever. My, my actions speak for who mm-hmm. I am and what I'm able to do, and what other people think about me is their deal. And yeah, I whatever. I concentrate on myself personally. That's cool. Maybe it's a little egotistic, but um, <laughs> no, it's probably healthy. It's very healthy. But yeah, the main thing I would say about approaching people, even people with physical disabilities, is you don't want to do the uh, four-year-old questions like, right. how'd you lose your legs, man? Yeah. Um, but, and you don't need to shout. <laughs> you don't need to talk at a higher level mm-hmm. if they have a disability. Yeah. I mean, if it's migraines, that may drive them crazy. <laughs> <laughs> probably will. But you can probably, in the normal healthy conversation, go, so I, I've just been really curious. I'm sorry if this um, offends you in any way, but what happened to your legs? Like, yeah. it was, what's the story behind that? And you'll probably get some very interesting insights about life oh, and seriously. overcoming challenges from those conversations, and they're worth it. We, I have a good friend that um, was shot in the back, actually shot in the belly, and it paralyzed him. He's a speaker. He's been on the show, and um, he he wrote a book called uh, – what did he call it? Um, shot Happens. Is the name of his book? That's awesome. And he, um, but he's he is my actually my first guest on this show. He's the only guy that's ever sworn on BYU radio, and um, <laughs> that he swore is horrible. And but he said the most interesting thing that uh, I don't even I didn't know what to like. I don't know what you ask. But we're sitting there at dinner, and there's the middle of a snowstorm, and he's like, "Dude, I'm not going to get out of here because I'm on wheels, and I can't get through the snowstorm." And I'm like, well, what would you like me to do? I don't, I don't know what to do. I'd love to help you get. He's like, can you go get my car and bring my car around? And I brought his car around and um, parked the car. And, he, and then he's like, okay, open the door. And I, open, I got it all ready. For, and he, he just wheeled right in. And I go, so do you have to do that with everyone? I mean, every time there's a snowstorm, he's like, oh, no, I could have made it to my car. I just wanted you to bring it over here. He was just playing with me. He was playing with me. But what's amazing is they're much healthier with it than we are. We just – we don't understand and there's so many different – it's like any, I guess. It's like any diversity. Mm-hmm. You got to – instead of like crossing the line and, and wondering, like I hear African-American women, people are always touching their hair. Like, come on. My daughter's pregnant and people are always touching her belly. It's her belly. Don't touch her belly. If somebody started touching my belly, I'd be like, what are you doing? Um, but – we just need to, I guess, ask for permission and yes. find out and tell them what we yes. – I don't know what to do here. How can I help you? And, and that, that's kind of the main disability etiquette rule of thumb is, is just ask. Ask if they mm-hmm. need help. Don't assume they need help. Yeah. Ask if um, – and if you're curious about the disability, just say, yeah, I'm just curious about what happened and what that's like for you. And I, mm. I want to learn more about it. So it's more of a curiosity than, yeah. oh, what's wrong with you, you poor thing. And um, I know one of our students in the club or the society, he was on his mission. He got some infection in his legs, so he had to have one of his legs amputated, Mm. and he has a prosthetic leg. And he said, people treat me really differently now. He says, I'm not ashamed of this, but people treat me weird. Like Like they're really uncomfortable around me, but they don't talk about it. So it's oh. it's it's like – and there is – a lot of people do feel uncomfortable, like I don't know what to do or say or some of them that might have a service animal. Yeah. They're like, 
you know, you're not supposed to go up and pet the animal. <laughs> Here, boy, throw a ball. There is some distracted. etiquette around that, but 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 to be able to say, oh, tell me about your service animal. Yeah. What, what? How does that help you? And I'm really interested in learning about that and and how you know how we can be helpful if you need help from us. Yeah. And, and just I think being honest, and there's no cut and dried formula. Some mm-hmm. people might be bugged by that question where others are very open about it. And so you just, if you feel curious, ask. Yeah. And build the relationship. Yeah. I guess if yeah. you have a relationship, you can probably say anything. Right. If they don't know you, build the relationship first, then you can probably ask anything. Because mm-hmm. I've had students that I've seen and I've wondered, wow, what happened? Yeah. And I'm not sure what happened to you is a good question, but just going up and saying, tell me your story. Yeah, tell me your story. Yeah. Because that's what you probably could imagine with all the veterans meetings. Right, and right. Tell me your story. Oh, well, my leg was blown off here. Where was your leg blown off? Mm-hmm. They're so adapted and okay with it. Well, we appreciate you guys. This is um, – I think it's a great lesson for all of us. And um, keep up the great work for all of you uh, out there that might be suffering from a disability. Go around. You can find um, – what did you call it? A, a – a disability the university accessibility center. accessibility we got center. rid of the disability thank word. you <laughs> accessibility center and uh, good luck to you peter weitzel keep up the great work thank you or is it president peter weitzel <laughs> the president of the delta alpha pi honor society here at brigham young university we'll take a break my friends come back wrap up the second hour of the matt townsend show stick with us you're uh, we're doing what we can to help you see the good in the world Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Great guests. And uh, really, when you think about it honestly, we're all disabled one way or another. Some of them, you know, might be more accepted by the American Disabilities Act. Uh, But did you think, did you ever think of fibromyalgia or chronic uh, fatigue? Or did you ever think of something like Crohn's disease as being a disability? Who who would have thunk? ADD, ADHD, anxiety, depression. Now, someone out there is thinking, oh, right, lowering the bar, lowering the standard. No, not lowering the standard. These are honor students that are getting a 3.6 or 3.5 or above at Brigham Young University that literally is, is one of the hardest schools to get into in the country. Because there's so many people that want to get here, they can't accept them all. But they're still pulling a 3.6, 3.7 with dyslexia, 3.8. Well, yeah, it's because the teachers are making it easier. They're not. They're just making it different. Why would we ever assume that the way we educate one person is the way we educate all people? It doesn't work that way. People are diverse. We have different issues. We have different needs. And the assumption that we should educate everyone the same and that will work, that's just wrong. That is an error, a thinking error. Everybody should have a shot to become what they want to become. If it takes somebody seven years to get a degree and they're not – it's not seven years because they're in a fraternity partying for seven years. 
but it's because they are they have a disability that makes them only carry nine or ten hours a semester, then they got to do it. I mean, I guess you could try to make somebody that is uh, visually impaired read a book that isn't accessible to somebody that's visually impaired. I guess you could try to force them to read the book, but how do they get a book? Well, you get someone else to just read it to them. Oh, okay, that that makes it even then, right? So take a hike. <laughs> anyway, we we got to make accommodation, and not because it's forced, but because it's right. And then we get that voice of that visually impaired person in the room, and we have we give them a little more time to have someone else read the book if that's what has to be done. Boy, and then what do we learn? Then we learn the power of having all the voices in the room. We raise the ships, we raise the tide, it all goes up. We don't have to compete. If so, then let's make it fair and give everyone a disability. And we all have to learn the same way. Fun stuff. We'll take a break, folks. Hour number two of the Matt Townsend Show. It's done. It's in the can. We'll be back next hour. More ideas right here on BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Happy Chocolate Day. Nom, 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 nom. The day of chocolate. How come? It, really, there are a lot of days of chocolate. Well, I'm it's, pretty sure it's we more have types it. of chocolate. Oh, yeah. Not This is like chocolate overall. Then you have your milk chocolate day. Yeah, you, you, have right. your you got your white can- chocolate day. Maybe a candy bar day, a hazelnut type situation. Who knows? <laughs> well, whatever it is. It's chocolate day. Happy chocolate day. Did you know Provo has a chocolate factory? Most places have some sort of yeah chocolate. Yeah, we we, we knew that industrialized. Man. No, sort like of it's situation. it's refined chocolate. It's like the wine tasting of chocolate. It's pretty cool. And it tastes really good. Ben. Okay, Ben. Isn't it like the grocery store? You just go down there and grab a candy bar and maybe grab some. No, it's like. They have the dark chocolate, like seventy no, percent cocoa. Or, you know, I'm telling you, know? you, but the chocolate world, there's a dark underbelly to the chocolate world. I went. There's a chocolatier. Yeah, it's like dark chocolate. Right? Eighty-five percent cocoa. There's a chocolatier in Salt Lake City, and I went. There's a shoe store. It's actually in Draper. There's a shoe store next to it, so I was getting my shoes taken care of, fixed, and I was waiting, and people would go into this chocolatier, and they were like. They looked like they were buying drugs. And they'd come out and they'd sit in their car and eat their chocolate. They'd just scarf it right there. And they would just sit back. Their eyes would roll back. <laughs> like, oh, wow, that was great. Honestly, I realized. Yeah. And it was like moms. They're, a lot of moms would pull up. It's how they'd cope. You it's could tell they just dropped their kids off at soccer. Right. And now mom is going to get her fix. Mom's got her medicine. At Chewy the Chocolatier's house. There you go. <laughs> now, my wife has a... This justification with dark chocolate because it has antioxidants. Oh, yeah. It's healthy. Yeah. I mean, no, it's still chocolate. Yeah. So whatever. I mean, yeah, it's got a good factor to it, but. Did you on. hear Did you hear what Ben did? Uh, what Ben did 
last Saturday. What did Ben do? Ben went to New York. What did I do? Oh, don't pretend like you don't know. Yeah. He went to New York to He's go so- to the Bigfoot, um, uh, a.k.a. Sasquatch retreat. Really? Yeah. Where a bunch of believers gathered Saturday in western New York, convinced of the legendary Sasquatch that, that – because that thing's left footprints all over the region. Right. It's real. So about 100 people sporting buttons that say, I believe. I believe. It's like a cult. I, I resent the convince and I'd like that to be replaced with acknowledge. Yeah. Oh, wow. OK. Well, okay. just keep thinking that. Keep um, the hope alive. It's, so it's, it's an institution for all the believers to go where they can talk about their scholarly works, their research. Right. It's where they can swap their videos. Mm. They can show – some of them can show about how they – they make the footprints look bigger by wearing big foot foot shoes. They don't talk about that. No, they don't. But these are believers. These are a lot of believers. There's another whole section of people who mess with the believers. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They 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 have another. They'll have a party. Yeah, they'll have a. a Guess what these guys talked about? Let's talk about <laughs> that. Yeah, but um, we have some audio from the meeting that I think is really riveting. Hmm. Um, will you will you play that for us, Ben? Hmm. Did you hear it? Is this the Sasquatch call class? No, no, no. That's not Sasquatch. Oh. That was the president. Oh, that actually sounds like Chewbacca. Yeah, was, maybe we got the sound mixed up again. Yeah, probably. We do. we do that from time to time. But he's Is that kind, the president. He's he's kind of Sasquatch looking. He's calling everyone to order. Um, the Department of Environmental Conservation. They still don't believe that there is such a thing as Sasquatch. Yes. They don't believe it. No. Because uh, people think it should be like put on the endangered species list. It's the lack of proof. Yeah. I mean, there's video, but everyone's fuzzy. Oh, yeah. And it kind of looks like a guy in a gorilla suit. <laughs> With, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's you, you got to get some definitive proof that this thing exists. So until that happens, they, they, they still think... They're not going to take an action to call it extinct or nearing extinction until they have, you know, it's still a mythical animal. Now, there's some episodes of the X-Files that are pretty convincing. Yeah. Again, So again, not. That's, X-Files isn't like a news source. But the truth is out there, Matt. <laughs> the truth is out there. My first scout camp ever. I want to believe, Matt. That's when I learned about Sasquatch was around a campfire, and it was terrifying. Sasquatches and snipes? Uh-huh, and snipes. Okay. You know, and the, the African Occupy yeah. was no. considered a myth for centuries, and when people would talk about it, they were ridiculed, mm-hmm. but then they discovered it. Yeah. What's your point? Yeah, people so, are ridiculing my people. But do, do they think Sasquatch is like the African Occupy? <laughs> do they think that? Yeah. They think they think it is the Occupy. They no no they oh, don't, okay. it isn't the yeah. Occupy. It's, Occupy. It's in this. It's in a similar situation. Mm, uh, I don't think that had anything to do with anything. Yeah, no. It totally did. No, no, no. It was a good try. Thanks for trying to jump in. This was and near be New part. York, right? So I think yeah. it has. I think it's more to do with what goes on at. Um, What's the what's the festival they had back there in the seventies? Woodstock. Woodstock. Yeah. So is it is it near Woodstock? Because maybe there's like maybe there's illegal drugs that are involved in the Sasquatch myths. Maybe. I don't know. I'm not going to go that far. Well, something's I, going on. I think on. people truly people believe. People keep seeing something. They see something. Yeah. It might be a deer. It might be.
uh, a, a big deer standing on its right. hind legs walking Absolutely. around. Absolutely. Or, or a bear. There's videos of bears that are on sure. their hind legs walking around in backyards of people's houses. Bear. Bear. Yeah. Or eating no canoes, bear. right? right. <laughs> hey, um, coming up in just a few minutes, we're going to have a guest we had on a few months ago named uh, Kirk Weisler. You may remember him. He wrote the book about the... Uh, well, it's like, how do you say it gracefully? The the dog poop initiative. The dog poop initiative. It's the title of the book. That's his book, and and he's got another book out, the Cookie Thief. But we're going to be talking about the stories you tell, just like you know the people that go and talk about Bigfoot. They tell their stories, and it creates a culture. He's going to be talking to us about the the culture and the and how you, the stories you tell build your culture, and why leaders need to be really good at telling effective, healthy stories. Right. We'll get into that. That's why our meetings, our show meetings are so effective. Incredibly effective. The stories we tell. And Ben, have you noticed Ben never goes to those meetings? I told him not to come. They don't really pertain to him. We have different meetings about in-studio type situation. This is more out of studio. But what I want to know is if Ben's not supposed to be there, then why is it that we talk about him the entire time in the meeting? Some of the producers are preoccupied with Ben. Some think he's cute. I try to divert attention, but, you know. Mm-hmm. Then he walks through the room. Mm-hmm. You ever notice purpose. how he walks through and he, like, flips his hair? Yeah, he stops and smiles. Hey. Drives me crazy. Ladies. Uh, any headlines going on, Terry? There are. Tonight, we talked uh, earlier this morning about some disputes over the green rooms by some Democratic candidates, or Republican candidates, for the debate tonight. Uh, some of the candidates not happy about their green rooms. The drama began Tuesday afternoon as Republican committee officials led campaigns on a walkthrough of the debate site on the campus of the University of Colorado. After touring the stage, candidates got a peek at what their green, room, green rooms would look like. Trump was granted a spacious room complete with plush chairs and a flat screen TV. Marco Rubio got a theater type room packed with leather seats for him and his team of aides. Uh, Carly Fiorina's room had a jacuzzi in it. Wow, she scored. I'm not sure how that's going to be used tonight. And then there was Chris Christie, whose small space was dominated by a toilet. So was Rand Paul's. The RNC officials agreed to address the campaign's concerns, saying that they would try to fix the problems with their workspaces. So apparently a toilet really isn't a feature. Hey, who gets the tub? So I like how she had a jacuzzi. Yeah. Seriously, you guys aren't going to be jumping in the jacuzzi. You're working. That's right. Hey, if you want better facilities... Get up higher in the vote and uh, in the la- polls. later on in what I was reading, one of the uh, staffers goes, "I was here for last time around when we were running in the green. We didn't have a problem with green rooms. We had twenty-two debates. Every green room was awesome. Oh boy! So see what happens with that." Uh, Defense Secretary Ash Carter said Tuesday that the U.S. will begin direct action on the ground against ISIS forces in Iraq and Syria, aiming to intensify pressure on the militants as as progress against them remains difficult. We won't hold back from supporting capable partners in opportunistic attacks against ISIL or conducting such missions directly, whether by strikes from the air or direct action on the ground. So they're not going to hold back. They're going to go after ISIS is what he's saying. White House Deputy Press Secretary Eric Schultz on Tuesday said the administration has no intention of long-term ground combat. He added that U.S. forces will continue to robustly train, advise, and assist, which sounds Mm. like a different wording of we're going to go get him versus we're going to sit back and assist. Yeah, exactly. So there seems to be a conflict in messaging between the, the Department of Defense and the White House. Yeah. So somebody better get on the right page. Somebody needs to make a phone call. So we know what's going on 
with the military. Speaking of the military, U.S. officials announced Tuesday that Iran has been invited to participate for the first time in international talks about Syria's future. Russia extended the official invite to the conference set for next week, but the move comes as a surprise as U.S. and Iran relations have been fraught with tension, particularly as Tehran has sent forces to assist Syrian President Bashar al-Assad's regime against the rebels. Iran has yet to respond to the invite. So uh, it looks as if possibly the U.S. is hmm. going, well, I guess we need your help after all to yeah. try to fix this. So uh, House GOP is moving to impeach the IRS commissioner for a breach of trust. Republican Representative Jason Chaffetz tweeted that he and 18 other committee members have filed the paperwork to move forward with charging the uh, commissioner with destruction of evidence and false statements under oath among the charges. The last time a cabinet officer or agency head was impeached was 1876. Wow. So, but aren't they really doing what every citizen would love to do? Go after the IRS just yeah. once, just once, just do it for us, do it for the people. <laughs> a thief behind the wheel of a stolen garbage truck went on a path of destruction Monday morning oh in Seattle, hitting numerous bikes, spilling fuel, and running over a tree. This was uh, a Seattle police report that a waste service driver was collecting trash when a man lunged at him and stole the truck. Police say the thief stole the, went on a joyride, weaving in and out of traffic. The truck ran over multiple bikes before it hit a few parked cars before coming to rest against another garbage truck. This all happened around wow. 7.15 in the morning in Seattle. The 18-year-old suspect, who only had a learner's permit, <laughs> was arrested. He didn't even have his garbage truck driving license. Correct. Yeah. See, and you can do this. There are multiple video games that let you steal sure. garbage trucks and just drive all over the city. You don't have to do it for real. What am I missing? When I was a kid, I never wanted to do that. I used to want to be the guy in the back throwing the garbage in. I thought that would be fun when I was a little kid. No, you just want to drive the truck around and run into things. No. Let's see, that would be fun now. <laughs> wow, people are weird. So this guy decided to steal a garbage truck. Oh, well, you know, good times. Some people, you know, some people when they're kids, I, they I, just... I, I, I guess the whole YOLO thing, you only live once, steal yeah. a garbage truck and see how far you can get. Boy, he's going to be in trouble. Wait till they give him community service. He'll learn. He will learn. Hey, uh, you all go to work, right? And when you go to work, have you ever noticed that it kind of feels like you're a tribe? You're a member of a tribe, a group. And there's a leader. And sometimes there's a culture of war. We're going to be talking with Kirk Weisler, uh, who's an organizational consultant, and he's going to be talking to us about culture in an organization and how our stories and the leaders and how the leaders carry on the stories can impact the people, the team, the morale, the results. It's a big, big uh, deal and lesson for all of us that have to deal and interact with um, people in our tribe at work, at home. We'll be talking with Kirk Weisler when we come up. Stick with us, folks. Uh, We'll take a break. We'll be right back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. You know, uh, think of an ancient indigenous tribe, right? Their culture is probably shown through specific rituals and traditions that are really precious to them. There is probably some sort of a warrior who protects that culture and a storyteller 
who communicates the culture, values, myths, and legends and traditions to the rest of the tribe. Well, what if our workplaces aren't so different from these indigenous tribes? Returning guest Kirk Weisler joins us. He's the chief morale officer and uh, a motivational speaker. He says that every leader needs to know the basics of tribal leadership and learn the way of the culture warrior. So he's here right now to talk to us about becoming a culture warrior and give us some of the tips and keys to making that happen. Kirk Weisler, welcome back to the show, my friend. Matt, what a what a pleasure! Thanks for having me back. You guys have been so fun this morning. This is great. It's uh, we're kind of it's, we're a little crazy today. It's, well, I mean, you, we, we went from Sasquatch to chocolate and back again, and I thought, man, I, I, I'm just trying to work it in there. I, and not only that, you brought the wives into it with the dark chocolate, I know. which I think is very important to talk about. Totally, if you want to not die. And it, it's the way that's that's the way the, the show works because that's the way our minds work. We pretty much can go anywhere, anytime, just because we're that messed up. Hey, Kirk, you, this is a really cool subject you brought us today about um, kind of this idea of seeing our workplace as a tribe, and we we need to we need to recognize. A couple things, I think. Stories you talk about, but you call it a warrior, being a culture warrior. Maybe first tell us what a culture is. What is like a company culture? And then why do you use the term culture warrior? Great question. Well, the, the culture, the easiest way to get to culture is just the culture is, it's, it's, it, you just described the culture workplace. You guys are a little bit weird, a little bit out there. Uh-huh. Uh, that's just that's just the way our minds work. So the, the culture of the family, the culture of the workplace, the culture of a team, that's the way things are. And sometimes it's the way we say things are, but but sometimes you know we've all been in those organizations or stores where they've got their big value statement on the wall. They've got posters yeah. declaring their mission statement and declaring their vision statement, but the culture itself doesn't seem to match. So So the posters don't always reflect. The culture is what people do and say and how they behave every day. Hmm. So that's the culture. Um, I work with organizations that are always trying to change or enhance or increase the engagement or the motivation in the culture. And so to do that, I say you have to be a warrior. And by being a warrior, I don't mean you have to put on face paint or uh, <laughs> you don't have to dress it up. You don't have to go all tribal and native. Right. But in the context of you've got to be absolutely committed because just wanting the culture to change or having some annual meeting to talk about the need for change isn't going to change anything. That, that if we really want to change the culture of any group or any family, you've got to get intentional about that. You've got to be absolutely committed, like a warrior. You've got to be committed to the tribe that I'm going to do this no matter what. This is the most important thing. Isn't that a problem today? It seems like I hear over and over that yeah. uh, people are kind of disengaged. They're not, they're not buying into their culture as much. Right. At work. The, yeah, Gallup does this annual engagement index. They've been doing it for about 12 years now. And with all the research and all the books and all the speakers out there talking about it, we haven't seen it bump one iota. Engagement still is at a historic low. Uh, only 33% of you know your, people are engaged. 17% of those actively engaged. You know, so there's, there's there's some huge engagement issues there. So it's, it's not good. And, and that's why you need – because if you're not a warrior, if you're not in there having the fight, then what, I guess what's the opposite of the warrior? Just the, you know, happy-go-lucky. <laughs> well, you know, or the manager. The manager will say, hey, guys, we really need to work on this. And so we've got a new process and we've got some new accountability tools. But, but who's, who's going to lead that effort? And the other aspect, and I, you kind of mentioned this in the introduction when you were talking about this uh, 
this tribal storyteller. When I, when I think about, when I talk about the, the idea of a story warrior, what I'm really saying there is um, we've all been to the meeting where, you know, so-and-so gets up there and kind of paints the vision statement and, and uh, talks about how things are going to be, and, and, and everyone wants to believe it. It's kind of leaning forward. And, but then some people have been in four or five organizations before, and they've heard it all before. And, and, uh, and, and so they kind of sit back and go, well, let's wait and see. And so then we all kind of wander back to our cubicles or our workspace or to our task, and, and we never hear it again. You know, we're waiting for something to materialize. Right. That's not, that's not a story warrior. A story warrior is up there, and he's not going to tell the story once. He's going to tell it again and again and again and again. And that's why I think we draw the bridge back to that Aborigines culture, that matriarchal, that patriarchal storyteller. If you and I lived in that primitive culture, we don't have a cable package with 300 channels. <laughs> We've got one storyteller with 500 stories. And we gather every night around that tribal fire, and something very, very important happens. And I think this is critical to cultural change. You know, we talk about traditions and rituals. That critical thing that happens is the entire tribe gathers. Regardless of what your duties in the tribe are, you're all gathered around the same fire. You're all listening to the same story. But, Matt, what is that story about? I mean, it should be about the building of the, you know, the story of the successes that have made the tribe the tribe. Right. So that those 300 or 500 stories that that storyteller has, they're all really about the, the values and the norms. They're about bravery, sacrifice, honor, duty. So, so that, you know, think about what our 300 channels are about. They're about drama, adultery, murder, mayhem, mm-hmm. entertainment. I mean, we got SpongeBob for crying out loud that has his own channel. So, <laughs> so all, all of our channels are about all kinds of different stuff. And I don't want to throw that under the bus, but I'm just saying in our community, in our tribe, all those stories are very deliberate and they're about something pretty important. But the most important aspect, I think, outside of what they're about is the number of times that you and I will hear the same story over and over and over as we come up in this tribe. We're going to hear those same stories again and again and again and again. So the value, if the value is a nail, it just gets, we're pounding that value with a nail again right. and again and again. And this reinforces, it's that, that phrase that your mom says, you know, Matt, if I've told you once, I've told you. <laughs> a thousand times. Repetition is the mother of learning and skills. So what mm. we try to do is show organizational leaders, hey, don't be afraid to repeat yourself. Don't sound like a broken record, but don't be afraid to repeat yourself. You've got to be a warrior for this story because the story is going to drive home a principle and a point that's going to influence the culture over the long term. I mean, you could see that like a Bill Gates, they've got a great story of how they founded uh, Microsoft and that story could be told over and over. But it also seems like, and this is, I guess, part of being the story warrior, is there, there's examples of leaders in Microsoft today that are doing amazing things, and those stories parallel what Bill Gates did. So maybe those stories are the stories we also need to be telling and adding to the mix. We've got exactly right, Matt. But we've got to we've got to be intentional. So many organizations I go to, they've got a great story, but no one's telling it. Yeah. Or it's been told. It's been told. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of said everything I need to say. So they, you know, they, the leader kind of assumes because the, the story's been said that. Everyone drank the Kool-Aid, but there's some people in the back going, eh, I don't know if I really like the color. <laughs> so we've got to tell it again and again and again and again. We've got to be really warrior. We've got to warrior up and just stand up there and say it again and again. What if somebody doesn't, and maybe this is the assignment of all of us, is we've got to make sure that our story fits into that bigger narrative, don't we? Absolutely. So if, for example, 
a leader tells a story of, and we want higher levels of initiative or we want higher levels of ownership or higher levels of accountability, whatever it is we want more of in the culture, we want that focus, then the leader ideally tells a story about that. He doesn't just talk about the word and give us the, the Webster definition, but he tells a story that illustrates that. So now I'm a mid-level manager and, and, and you're a director. So we really understand this is important. Our company really needs to inculcate this value into the, into the depth of our culture. So you as a director come back to your team and you pull us together and you might tell us the exact same story and that would be okay. And there's nothing wrong with that. But you might then tell us another story that illustrates the exact same principle. Mm. So you're now modeling, right? You're echoing in a sense yeah. and modeling that principle in a story. And then you might say, and for example, then you might say, let me give you an example of how this principle applies to a situation where Ben um, was interacting with one of our one of our guests yesterday in studio. Yeah, and then you tell the story about Ben and how Ben pulled out his his Sasquatch uh, trail guide and <laughs> really took an interest in. And, and so yeah. you tell a story about Ben, and all of a sudden now we can see, oh, there's the principle that was talked about at the head shed. Here it is every day. Here's what it looks like for us. Here's yeah. how we actualize that principle. So and then so you tell a story that is very personal and involving and invites us to be a part of it. That's cool. I mean, that really is, that's how you weave it together, right? That's how you weave the culture together. Well, Matt, you're, you're a radio guy. um, And I'd lie if I say I listen to you every day, but I've listened to you many times. That's what you guys do. So, but you're a natural storyteller. So you, you're naturally, you, you're, everything about your genetics is you're designed to kind of gather stories and illustrate stories and teach and, and pull people into stories. So for you, it's pretty natural. For right. some people, they need a little bit of coaching and to become a little bit more more aware. And so we kind of coach them and kind of That's cool. help create some of that awareness. Yeah. You know what? Let's take a break, Kirk. We're speaking with Kirk Weisler. And if you go to the website, kirkweisler.com, K-I-R-K-W-E-I-S-L-E-R.com, kirkweisler.com. Again, he's the author of The Dog Poop Initiative, The Cookie Thief, a bunch of other things. And he's a, he's a consultant that will come talk to your organization about uh, how to build these kind of culture warriors and these story warriors um, the power, folks, of the narrative. I'm telling you, you hear it in politics all the time. They got to control the narrative. You got to control the stories. Um, it's a powerful way to unify and to create this uh, this collective culture. Powerful stuff. We'll take a break. We'll come back. Continue the discussion more after the break with Kirk Weisler. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, uh, joining us is Kirk Weisler, who's the chief morale officer for many companies and organizations around the globe. He offers coaching, keynote addresses, and workshops for companies of all services and sizes. He's also a well-known author of some motivating books like The Dog Poop Initiative, The Cookie Thief. You can find him at kirkweisler.com. Today, he's talking to us about a leadership principle and the importance of um, creating culture, which is that that sense of who you are, your identity, your unity as a tribe or a group. And he talks about um, 
how your stories and your rituals make such a big difference there. Kirk, welcome back to the show, my friend. <laughs> Pleasure to be here. Great to have you. Pleasure to be here. Hey, talk about uh, leaders. I know you go in and you teach leaders uh, stories, and you use stories to kind of coach the leaders. What are some stories that you use when you're talking to people about leadership? Well, one of the stories uh, I use is a story uh, about a storyteller that influenced me. I, I had a I had a boss. Uh, his name was Art Coombs, and uh, and as I was young and trying to understand this new industry that I was in, I. I was mentored by this man, and he would come in. He would always kick off a meeting with a story. And it wasn't some – it was usually kind of tight and focused. He was usually the central character in the story. And what I noticed about it, he was my fearless leader. He was the, you know, in my view, the alpha male leader that was going to create a thousand jobs and raise this money. But what was interesting about the stories he told is they were illustrative of some mistake that he'd made and something he'd learned from it. Hmm. What, it what the story ended up doing was kind of making him approachable and making him real and making him authentic. and. And he seemed to be saying to us, hey, listen, if we're going to do this and be innovative, we're going to make mistakes too. I remember particularly one story he told that had a lot of symbolism as far as he was a high school football player, and he'd really screwed up on this play, and they'd lost some yards. And he talked about how the, the coach kind of pulled him off the field. young. So here's this fearless leader, but now you see him as a high school guy who screwed up the play. Yeah. And he gets instead of the quarterback coming off on the, on the break, the coach, Herb Lee, calls him over. And uh, what, says, what happened on that play? And, and, and he said, I began to tell the coach, well, I was thinking the count was on two, but it was on three. And be, so I got off late on my block. And, and then he talked about how Coach Herb Lee reached in and grabbed his face mask. And I remember Art holding up his hands with his two fingers and, and, and kind of illustrating just what, it, what, it, what happens when someone grabs you by the face mask. And he talked about how this coach pulled him in with his face mask and kind of shook his helmet just, just slightly. But he said, when someone grabs your face mask and shakes your helmet, they really have your attention. Yeah, you pay attention. And, and then he said, hey, Coombs, excuses don't change results. Hmm. Now we're going to go out there. We're going to run the exact same play. But this time I know you're going to hit your man and you're going to, right? Yeah, anyway, do your so block. The story goes, so the story goes, he goes back out there. He hits his man. He creates a block. They gain the yards. They win the game. All that's good. And I thought, well, that's an interesting story. And I'm looking around at our 25 new hires in the group there. Well, two days later, we get slammed in our business. So our call volume just goes through the roof. And I remember I'm running through to, to talk, talk to some kid about a fire that's going on at one end of our company. As I'm, as I'm running through this one group of, of employees, one of them's kind of whining about something. Well, I can't do that because of this. And well, at the same time he's whining, I'm like, I need to come back and talk to this guy because we can't have that kind of whining going on here. But at the same time that happens, I watched Art's story come alive and affect behavior. And what happened was two other guys who were both on phone calls with customers snap their fingers at the third guy. Now they're on phone calls with customers. They can't say anything, Yeah. but they snap their fingers. They got his attention and they both held up their hands in the shape of Art's hand, grabbing the face mask. <laughs> and they both shook their hands like they were synchronized swimmers and they mouthed excuses. Don't change results. Nothing was said. It was all just That's simple, great. hide the story. And the third kid, the one that was whining, he looked at them and he goes, ah, and he, and he jumped back on the phones, and I was like, "Whoa, how cool is that?" That's great. A story, a story, just influenced behavior and became part of our cultural norm. Mm -hmm. It was, it was, the, and I was like, I, 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 I don't want to claim that I understood and got that, but over the next few months, I began to see that story take on a life of its own and influence behavior in a, in a magical way. And I'm like, 
well, I need to figure out more about this and no, be more totally. intentional about it. No, that's it. I mean, and that really is – it is – so a, a culture is the accumulation of stories. Right. The stories that we tell. And, the, and, that, drive to, and that drive to activity and results. And it, it, these stories keep bringing us back in too. Yeah. Stories that invite reflection. Reflection invites, you know, kind of I'm reflecting now. What, how is this – how does this relate to me? And stories really kind of invite us to reflect on how am I attached to that story? What does that story mean to me? And then it, it really has that potential to have that aha moment. Yeah. Reflection, revelation, aha, and now behavior. I'm like, now I'm going to reconsider or consider my behavior. So, well, and it also tells us that sometimes the, the self-deprecating story is the best story. Right. Instead of no, instead of always telling the story where we look like the hero, we look so great, we look so strong. Sometimes the more accessible story is the one where you were human and you blew it. Matt, that was, that's a black belt answer. What you just said, I hope your listeners, that's a black belt answer because if if we can, so for example, we want who's the other guy in your studio? Ben and yeah, Ben and Terry. Terry. So let's pretend that Terry's not that teachable. You know what I'm saying? Oh, Terry's let's not pretend. Bit, Okay, so Terry thinks he knows some stuff, okay? And, um, and we'd like Terry to be in a more teachable place. Yeah. Or we'd like Terry to read a book, for crying out loud. We'd like <laughs> Terry to read a book. So we say, Terry, you should read a book and you should be more teachable. And Terry's like, well, you're sure full of yourself, right? <laughs> That's not going to get it. So how do we reach Terry? How do we help Terry get to a more teachable place? How do we help Terry read the book? Well, a lot of managers go, you should read. We'll put on a, a performance improvement program. But a wise leader simply stands in front of Terry and says, hey, you know, or, or sits with Terry and goes, man, I was reading the best book last night. Opens up the book and says, here's what I learned. So now I'm modeling for Terry what teachableness and learning looks like. Right. Right. And so my attitude, right, my enthusiasm is contagious. My enthusiasm for what? Well, at this point, my enthusiasm for reading, my enthusiasm for being teachable. So leaders want to see more openness to change in their people. Their people need to see more openness to change oh. in their leader. Kirk, it's so it really is, and that it seems like such a basic concept, but yeah. such such a such an essential essential truth. Um, we got to go. Uh, got a hard break coming up, but Kirk, no. if they want to find you, they go to kirkweisler dot com, and you'll go out. You'll teach. I mean, you've got stories that they can buy, books that you've done, but really, um, it, it, you're better in person. You know what I mean? They ought to bring you to their office, have you fix their people. <laughs> they could. Final word that I would share, Matt, if I just, Yeah, please. Before your heartbreak, and that is, there's a, one of the books that I used to help me kind of get going was a book called All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. I love that book. It's not a book that says, here's, we're going to teach you how to tell the story, but it's a book filled with stories that I think are naturally told almost like a radio host would tell. Yeah. It's a good book. And then you can use all those stories. Uh, in your use company. Those as, use those stories as models. I certainly did. Great stuff. Kirk Weisler at KirkWeisler.com. Uh, go check out that book, All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. The stories, folks, they build the rituals, they build the uh, learning, they build the connection. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. A little Taylor Swift in one of her, describing one of her tragic breakups. We're using this music to throw it down to our good buddies at uh, BYU Sports Nation, Spencer and Jerem, who they are back together after many a fight. How are you, gentlemen? It's good to be back. You need to take days off, you know? Yeah. 
You took a day off, Spence, and uh, did you go? You're still the president of the Taylor Swift fan club, right? One of them, yeah. <laughs> At least from BYU Sports Nation. Hey, talk about, you have a Taylor Swift story for us. That I do. Okay, so I met Karen Mangum, Tanner Mangum's mother. Yes. Quarterback at uh, BYU. The first lady uh, of BYU much. Sports. Well, that would be whoever Tanner's dating. That's right. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. That's a different subject. Whole different subject. <laughs> <laughs> you guys have some dirt. BYU SNTMZ. Mm. Oh, we know. <laughs> okay, cool. Uh, okay, so back to Karen Mangum, Tanner's mom. Yeah. So I met her for the first time after the Cincinnati game. And super nice person. She's a hugger. Mm, good. You know? Yeah. So she's like, I watch you every day. I don't let Tanner watch. I tell him not to watch. But yeah, I good. watch every day. He and his, uh, me with his father. And, of course he watches. We know. Yeah. We like what Come you on. do. So she was really nice about the show. But then I said, you know, I just, there's something about Tanner that just, uh, I feel like I relate to him. And I'm like, I think it starts with music because he loves Coldplay. And... Does he love Coldplay? Oh, yes. He loves I Coldplay. love Coldplay. Okay. I love him more. So she's like, okay, well, now here's the real test. Do you like Taylor Swift, Spencer? And I said, yes, I have her latest album playing in my car right now. And she said, well, then indeed, you and Tanner can be friends. <laughs> that is just awkward. <laughs> so after the last game against Wagner, I'm leaving, and I see Tanner for a second, and he's like, Spencer, T-Swift, bro, what's up? Oh, no way. <laughs> you guys, you're going to go to the next Taylor Swift concert together. Maybe, maybe. Well, that would be a great double date. T-Swift. <laughs> yeah. T-Swift. Sing some more songs. Jerem wanted to go to her latest concert. Jerem, are you into Taylor? Swift? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No. She's really talented. Oh, yeah. No, the Taylor Jones. That's fantastic. Oh, that's great. Let's see. That's, you've just humanized Tanner for us. That's great. T-Swift, bro. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Don't go well, there, gentlemen. <laughs> we, uh, we have a little uh, audio of that. Hey, um, here's a question for you. Uh, what did you think about the Royals-Mets game? Well, that was something so, last night. So huh? it went five hours. Five plus, right? I got, I got home from. Uh, I got home at like eleven, and uh, wait, said, where were where were you playing basketball? Okay, so I so I said to my wife, "Hey, let's turn on the Royals Mets game." My two year old was still up, so I was like, well, wow. "What are you doing awake? at eleven o'clock?" She hadn't taken a nap; she was just wide awake. Yeah, she sure. fell asleep. No, it's negligent. Whatever. So I said, "Hey, we got to turn on the game." We turn on uh, the game. Uh, game one of the World Series to the half inning where the Royals score the game winning run, oh. and I saw the whole thing, but I missed five hours of meaningless baseball. Did you Did you hear fantastic. about the in the park home run? That's cool. Yeah, I heard about that. Did you hear about the Fox News losing their feed? Just the Fox. Feed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Straight up Fox. What in the world? So even oh there, yeah, just Fox. That's yeah. that's pretty horrible. You guys yeah. know the power of that. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's never happened to you. That's but worst case up. scenario. Oh, for sure. They spent what a half a billion dollars to get that thing. Apparently. For a television provider of the World Series, Can't going have dark is the worst possible oh, yeah. thing. Well, there, let me just tell you. There's one thing that's worse. Okay? Did you hear about the lady that got shot shot by her dog? What? True, true story. So this woman's walking with her dog, and apparently the dog shot her. True story. I kid wow. you not. I mean, I can't make this up. Listen, gun. By the way, did you know what the dog's was name was? Trigger. Trigger. 
For no. real. No, for Come real. On. In Indiana over the weekend, the hunter became the hunted when a woman was shot by her dog, aptly named Trigger. Police what? say the 25-year-old Allie Carter was hunting for waterfowl when she placed her 12-gauge shotgun down to the ground. The safety was not on, and Trigger stepped on the shotgun. It's called safety for a reason. That's right. And you know what? Actually, there's witnesses that say that it didn't go down that way. It said that uh, uh, Allie was getting a little mouthy, and Trigger kept like saying, quit snapping at me. And then she turned her back, and he, he cocked the gun. And he allegedly shot her. What in the? Is she okay? She's fine. It, uh, it, he shot her left foot and her toes. Oh, but with the twelve gauge shotgun, well, like, she gonna walk again? Yeah, she'll walk. She'll be fine. The problem is, do you know how hard it is for a dog to hold a twelve gauge shotgun? <laughs> <laughs> and even like get it on his shoulder, right? You know, it's hard. They don't have fingers. I'm just bringing you the facts. How many times has that happened in the history of all humankind where an animal fired off a weapon and it hurt a human being? This can't possibly be the first time no, ever, it's right? rare. This is like lightning striking 55 times in one spot. I mean, especially—I mean, it happens a lot. Dogs shoot a lot of people, but the dog named Trigger, come on. <laughs> it's too good. Totally, it's totally just, rare. Just too good. It's hilarious. Hey, use that on your show today. You guys doing a show today? We are doing a show. What? What's you going to talk about? Sports or something? We'll just start with this. Steve Young on the show. Oh wow! Tell him the story about Trigger. He'll love it. Maybe we will. I would. No time. Okay. We've got really important things to discuss with what, Steve. Yeah, like Taylor. What are you? Gonna, what else are you going to talk about? Like Taylor. Swift. Find out if he likes Taylor Swift. Well, notably, he's a quarterback, and he has been very outspoken in the past about Taysom Hill and. Him wanting BYU to go back to that traditional throwing offense. Well, now hmm. BYU has that with Tanner Mangum. What does Steve Young think about the Mangum miracles? Cool. Has he reached out to Taysom in terms of what Mr. Hill's future holds and what Steve wants him to do? That's Interesting, cool. captivating stuff. That'll Plus be Chase Fisher of the men's basketball team because tonight is the Cougar tip-off. It's an intra-squad scrimmage. We're on the call for that. Cool. You can lis- listen to that on BYU Radio. Watch it online only. BYUtv.org or the BYUtv app. You guys. Nine Eastern. Too Plus legit. Remington Peck. Did you hear the BYU football team? They do these firesides, right? They yeah. They do these yeah. chats yeah. You know, about religion and whatnot. So they, they went to the Utah State Prison on oh, Friday. Oh, cool. Yeah. Very cool experience. Uh, we taped that yesterday with Remington Peck, who's now a tight end on the team. So awesome, awesome experience from that. Um, some inmates lives you know Changed. affected by that and uh BYU affected by that hmm. in a positive way so by the way would you ever name your dog Remington I wouldn't I don't know you'll get shot Remington Steel <laughs> <laughs> yeah baby that's a great Whoever show Browning, I love yeah, that show but, yeah and I love our show no you guys honestly you put together it's day in and day out you put together some seriously good stuff I'm there glad that I two, can be on the air before you. There are only two projects I think of that have to do this on a daily basis. That's it. I know. I know who you're talking about, the other one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There are other daily shows here, aren't there? Mr. Matt Townsend. There are. But, but you know, but you guys put together like real, like like Steve Young. I mean, hey, that's like. let's what, not forget about Kim Power Stilson. Oh, that's uh, true. Yeah. She, she's she not always right? live every day, but she's oh, okay. here regularly. Never mind then. <laughs> totally discredited. I'm just kidding. No, they're fantastic. But um, you guys are going to have a great show. I can already tell. 
And I, I, I just feel really good about if you want to sh- share the story with Steve about Trigger, go right ahead. I think we'll let you monopolize that one, man. Oh, you guys are so nice. Mm-hmm. Ain't nobody got time for that. You can own that one, bro. <laughs> okay, well, um, I will. Have a great show. Go wax up and get ready. T-Swift, bro. T-Swift out, yo. <laughs> I don't know how to be cool. Okay, have a great show, guys. Right, thank you. Knock them dead. Yeah, they are hip. They got they got T Swift down, down and out with T Swift. Hey, did you hear um, this crazy story? This reminded me of you, Ben. By the way, earlier, did you notice Ben that our guest kept bringing you up? I know Kirk Weisler kept bringing you up. Apparently, I'm the literate one between Terry and I. Yeah, apparently, yeah, you're the only one that reads the book. That was funny. We'll hear about that all afternoon. Hey, um, but here's the crazy story coming out of Kansas. They say they're searching for a sword-wielding suspect who was chased through multiple backyards by a resident armed with a spear. Yikes! (laughs) Wichita police said a 49-year-old woman called 911 about 8 a.m. Saturday and reported finding a man armed with a sword in her bedroom. The woman told police she initially thought the man was there to speak with her son. Uh, sir, with the sword, are you here to speak with my son? By the way, her son does medieval reenactments. But she soon discovered that the man was taking items from the home. So this is like an armed robbery with a sword. This is crazy. Police said the woman woke her son, who armed himself with a spear used in the reenactments, and chased the suspect through several backyards. Yeah, And they started chasing. Police say the suspect got away, but they are looking into whether the woman was correct in thinking that she recognized him from the reenactments that she participates in with her son. See, that's an inside job. Boy, it's like a game of thrones, and I've never even seen that. It's like a, it's like a video game going on there. Swords. People with swords... Chasing each other through the backyard? Man. Yeah, right, Ben? Ben just stubbed his toe. Yeah, it really hurt. Yeah, right? Yeah, I'm okay. Be careful. Again, just because we care about you, we love you, we don't want anything to happen to you, watch out if your dog's named Trigger. If I were you, I'd name your dog Safety. Safety first, folks. Hey, as you know, we always like to wrap up the show with a good uh, feeling uh, hero story. Today, our hero is an 11-year-old who helped to deliver his baby brother. An 11-year-old boy helped his mother deliver his baby brother. James Dukes is a proud big brother. James helped deliver his baby brother at a home in Marietta when his mother went er into early labor, according to um, uh, KSL.com, who's reporting the story. Royal Dukes will never hear the end of how his 11-year-old brother James stepped in to deliver him when mom went into early labor. All of a sudden, I, could, I couldn't get to the bed anymore, so I just collapsed on the floor, said Kenyatta Dukes. Just as suddenly, Royal was born, and with dad at work, James jumped in. It didn't really scare me, he said. It's, it was more just like, let me clean off the baby. <laughs> And make sure he's okay. Make sure my mom's okay, said James. Then James called 911. My mom just had a baby at the house and she needs somebody to come, said James to the 911 dispatcher. Dispatcher said, okay, gently wipe off the baby's mouth and nose and wrap him in a clean, dry towel. 
He was, uh, with my help, he was my guardian angel. He was the man. He was the doctor. He was my superhero, said Kenyatta Dukes. Since kindergarten, James said he's dreamed of playing football in the NFL. But before paramedics arrived on Tuesday, he picked a new career. He now plans to be a doctor. That is so cool. James, you are the hero. James Dukes, a proud big brother and uh, a future doctor. Thanks, my friend, for uh, being there for your mom and taking care of uh, what's most important. And for all of the rest of us, again, you don't have to be a big brother to take care of somebody. You just have to be there, just like James was. Be there in the time when somebody needs you and be willing to, uh, to do what you can to help. That's the show, my friends. We can't do it without you. If you want to, to follow us on Twitter, you can, at Dr. Matt Show. Or if you want to, some of the podcast versions of the show, you can go back to all of our archives. If you go to byuradio.org, you'll find our site there. You can live stream us there. Go to iTunes or tune in to get uh, some of the past episodes as well. Again, appreciate you being here. We'll be back tomorrow. tomorrow. More ideas, more tools to help you find the good in the world. And remember, until then, take care of each other and make it a great one. We'll talk again tomorrow.